0: if they all finally get to say on page we fuck other girls which like they haven't been allowed to do for 40 years yeah then you know what let's let them fuck a whole bunch of girls in my opinion
1: x-men x-men in the 21st century people mutants led by magneto aim to destroy the world only hope is
0: Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of homo superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Dr. Stephanie Burt, professor of English at Harvard University, a literary critic and poet, once hailed by the New York Times as one of the most influential poetry critics of her generation. Stephanie, how are you today?
1: I am doing pretty well, and I am super honored to be on Cerebro. I'm, I'm sort of melting a little bit.
0: I'm thrilled to have you. Certainly the first Harvard professor I've had on. Harvard is, it looms large in my mind because my parents met at Harvard Law School. Oh. Yeah, there was always like, are you going to go to law school? And I was like, no, because I won't get into Harvard and then it'll be weird because <laughs> you guys met there. <laughs> also, I didn't want to be a lawyer, but yeah, the initial concern was embarrassment. Stephanie is here today to chat with me about Catherine Anne Pride, best known as Kitty Pride or Shadow Cat, but lately going for the more mature Kate Pride as Red Queen of the Hellfire Club and Captain of the Marauder. It is Purim tonight as you're listening to this. This episode's a little later in the week than usual because I had a rough week and I'm a little bit behind schedule. You may have seen on social media, but my grandmother passed away. I want to just honor her here to start because Joan Goldstein bought my dad all of those comics. Oh, So it really does start with her. She married my grandfather, who was a Jew, at a time when the relationship was considered essentially interracial, very scandalous. They both had family members who did not approve. It was a really big deal. And she always told me it was just the times is never really an excuse. I was born in 1931, and I always knew that Jewish people were the same as anybody else and Black people were the same as anybody. We knew what was right and what was wrong. So don't ever let anybody lie to you about that. Anyway, she was great. She was a uh, public school librarian for decades.
1: Librarians are cool.
0: She was the Framingham School District librarian.
1: Oh, wow. Wow.
0: My dad's from Boston. So small world, I guess. I will miss her very much. And my love of reading really does come in part from her. So now we'll move on to something a lot more pleasant. But that is why this episode's a little late. And thank you all for your patience last week with the episode coming on Saturday in the wee hours of the morning.
1: She sounds pretty amazing. Thank you. Yeah,
0: well, thank you for being here. I will say, up front, I am going to use the names Kitty and Kate interchangeably because it's going to be however it happens in my head. I know to a lot of people, the use of Kate is important for a political reason, i.e. the name that someone chooses should be their name. And let me assure you, if... It was an issue of identity. If Kate was, for example, transitioning, I would be very, very, very strict about that with myself. Because it's more her trying to assert herself as a grown-up, I'm not going to be as hard on myself. But I don't know. What do you think about that, Stephanie? Do you have thoughts?
1: So I, I do think about this a lot. I think that Kate chose to go by Kate to indicate, as it were, that she's not who she was and that she's in control now in ways that she didn't used to be and that she wants some distance between who she is as captain kate pride the red queen and the captain of the marauder right and the various other identities that she's occupied so i think it's it's pretty important to refer to present day dawn of x era as kate that's an on-page thing you can sort of tell who's well-disposed toward her and who's not by who bothers to get the name right. Because it indicates who she's become, not who she always was, I, I don't see the character objecting to being called Kitty when she was going by Kitty.
0: That's my thing, is it doesn't feel to me like a change that I need to apply retroactively, whereas if it were, for example, a case of transition, I would feel the need to do that because it would be very different. That's right. People have made the explicit comparison to me in emails to the podcast and other things. And so the way I've tried to deal with it is I always say Kate if we're talking about the present, but if we're talking about classic stories, it's almost just impossible to make my brain not That's you know what I mean?
1: That's right. And if you're if you're writing about trans people in the past and and I, I get this sometimes from people who want to cite my work. Right. Or if you're a biographer or something and the person's alive, you can ask them.
0: I have several trans clients who feel differently about this from each other. I just try to be conscientious and ask people what they prefer before I do anything. Exactly. I just wanted to tackle that head on at the beginning. Good call. Because I don't want anyone to think I'm not sensitive to this issue. Yeah. To me, it's a temporal thing. And when I talk about Kate, I'm talking about the stuff right now. Or the one thing that's a little confusing, the Kate of Days of Future Past, which used to be the distinction between Kate and Kate. That's right. That's right. To me, Kitty is the character from the classic stories. And I think, honestly, that the character herself is making that delineation right. a thing. And, you know, in terms of how characters regard her, as you pointed out, Ilyana calls her Kitty and she clearly does not mind.
1: Ilyana's a special case, though. Also, as, as how often Ilyana calls her Kitty when she comes back from the dead. Correct. I don't think she keeps on calling her Kitty.
0: I don't think we've seen them interact since, actually. No, there's so it's hard very to heavily implied
1: off-page interaction yeah. later, but we don't, that you can't, it couldn't actually put what's going on there on a comics page. You Probably not. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the, there's, uh, before the Death and Resurrection, there's a very pointed set of scenes where Emma yes. is the first one to get with the program.
0: Emma immediately gets it.
1: Yes, and that is going to set the tone for all of the Emma-Kate interaction in this era.
0: Absolutely. And I think that it makes sense that it's Emma because Emma's the one who understands presentations of all kinds, whether they're gendered or class-based or just in terms of reconfiguring. I mean, Emma has reshaped her face, her body to present herself a certain way. She really understands that you should take people the way that they want to present themselves. And so when Kate says, I'd like to be Kate now... Emma's like, completely, I'm on board. Um. By the way, darling, will you do my thing that I want you to do? Yes. Kate? Yeah. Kate, will you do the thing that I'm asking for?
1: Emma also has a history of trying to get Kate to do things and very, very closely studying who Kate is. Yes, obsessively. Going back to the introduction of both characters.
0: Going back to God Save the Child. Yes, where they are introduced together in the same issue.
1: Yeah, you can ask about most of the bronze age major characters who is their villain yeah what villain is their villain alone
0: what character are they paired with as an antagonist exactly
1: and and for scott it's mr sinister and for you know chuck it's it's always eric except when it's the shadow king which i don't like
0: for storm it's sort of callisto and then that relationship evolves into something else
1: for storm
0: I mean, in the Bronze Age material itself, like by the time of Buton Massacre, that's right. That relationship has evolved enormously, but they're the, they're set up as oppositional, yeah, initially. But for
1: Kitty, it's Emma. For
0: Kitty, it's Emma, absolutely.
1: And and Emma takes now that she's on the side of the angels, mostly. She takes all of the knowledge she's gained of Kate's past and Kate's temperament, and uses it to help Kate become who Kate wants to be.
0: Yes. Absolutely. And a lot of the groundwork for that was set in The Whedon Run, which I don't like.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. The Whedon Run. I hate
0: the way The Whedon Run does it. I do think that it reemphasized the relationship in a way that was important to get us to where we are now. But I think that the way it's written now is much more in keeping with the way it was written in the 80s, as opposed to The Whedon Run, which just felt catfighty to me in a way that I didn't think... Was correct. There's never
1: been a better time in history to dunk on the Whedon run, and I will happily join you in dunking on it. Oh,
0: please. I've hesitated in the past. I'm not hesitating for shit now. Because I've been Team Charisma since, what, 2002, when all that shit went down? Please. Yeah. No, no, no. I am mask off with that motherfucker. <laughs> so but we can get into it. Everything I hate about his run on the X-Men, because I fucking hate it. Oh, yeah. I
1: think it. you hate even more things than I hate about yeah. it. I think the the dialogue... Between the the moment to moment banter between Emma and, and Kate and the Whedon run is is actually well done. The motivations are wrong completely, and the plot is constructed around a hapless cishet male savior figure.
0: It's sexist and gross.
1: Yeah, and and uh, you know the more times Whedon does this, the more transparent it is.
0: Women who are mature and like actualized in their sexuality. Josh Joss Whedon just always feels the need to bring them
1: low. That's about right. He is so many of his plots are about wa- wanting to control teenage girls either on page or if there's not an on page or on screen antagonist who wants to do that. It's the writer who wants to do that.
0: Right. And older women are just useless to him.
1: Right. Unless they are mothers, in which case they can be killed off.
0: Correct. But older women who are not mothers, he disdains them when they are sexual or confident. And I would argue that Cordelia Chase is a character he disdains specifically because the actress was older than the other actors. By the time she gets to Angel, they stop pretending that she's supposed to be 19 because it's ridiculous. And they just write the character like she's 30 because the actress is. And Whedon didn't like the character. Sex is normal to her. He hates that.
1: Well, he hates it unless he can put his viewpoint character in bed with his favorite character.
0: That's true. Before we get really deep, I would love to talk a little bit about your origin story with the X-Men. Oh, yeah. Why you love these characters, what brings you to this world, and why you wanted to talk about Kate slash Kitty today. So many
1: reasons. And that will also provide a good uh, sort of on-ramp into so many of the issues and storylines and depictions that I love that have just shaped me. So I'm a little bit older than you. I'm old enough to have been buying some of the transform- I like I, I My first X-Comic was Uncanny 120, the origin of Alpha Flight. Love that for you. And I was buying X-Comics as they appeared, in New Mutants Comics as they appeared, off the spinner rack at the Cabin John Mini Mall uh, in Potomac, Maryland. Although, if you <laughs> want to think about how I grew up, if you're familiar with Montgomery County, Rockville is a better place to think about than... Potomac.
0: I'm familiar mostly with The Real Housewives of Potomac and my aunt lives in Bethesda. Okay,
1: you can think about Bethesda if you want. <laughs> the, the Real Housewives <laughs> of Potomac like go you, do that. That's not. A different, different environment. That was not the house think, I grew yeah. up in remotely. So I was, you know, buying these comics that have held up so well along with a lot of other comics by other creative teams that were not about mutants that have held up less well through the early 80s. I was reading every issue of Uncanny. I was reading New Mutants comics up until, I think, the 30s or 40s. I think the famous Larry Bodine story was one of the last ones I bought on a newsstand Mm. um, at at a drugstore.
0: Where's Larry Bodine, by the way? The Five should bring him back. Just my opinion.
1: You're right. He would be extremely shocked
0: If you're gonna do an issue about suicide, which I feel like, cause this is a question that's been raised, should people who died by suicide be resurrected? I would trust Leah Williams to write that issue. I think it would be a good issue of X Factor. Should we decide that this teenager who took his own life because he was a mutant, if he can be safe here, would he want to live? And they have to sort of make that executive decision I think could be very interesting.
1: I am in favor of bringing back people who died through self-harm, absolutely. I don't know that I'm in any hurry to read that story, although if they want to do it, Leah Williams would be a good choice.
0: It'd be a rough one. I think it would be an interesting one-off. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that could be really good. And if she hears this, I'm sure you already had the idea. So don't not do it just because I said so.
1: Yeah. There's also, there's the problem that, that Larry Bodine character, like some other... 80s, non apparently non-powered or very minor characters, belong so heavily to the teenage Westchester milieu that those stories were written for... Right. ...that it's hard to bring them back. There are reasons why we didn't see Stevie Hunter for a very long time. And then when she shows up again in X-Men Golds, it's not terribly credible.
0: I think that's more because... She was one of the Chris Claremont humans, and once he was off the books, they went out of their way to get rid of almost all of those characters, because they didn't want the book to be about that.
1: That is fair.
0: Like, they killed off Sharon Freelander. Yeah, you're right. Eventually, they kill off Moira.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Manoli Weatherall disappears. Manoli Weatherall, who is a real human being, just like Neil Conan.
0: In their first appearance, I think they then evolve into Marvel Universe people who would bear little resemblance to the actual NPR employees.
1: I would like someone to contact the, the NPR employees in question, who I, I believe are all like, still around. Manoli Weatherall retired.
0: Manoli Weatherall retired a couple years ago.
1: Uh, this is, is for the <laughs> National Public Radio Cerebro Special. Uh, you were asking about my no. origin story. Yes,
0: go back. go back. Go back to you. I was
1: reading these comics and I was imprinting on them and I didn't know that I was trans Uh, I knew that there was something going on where I was special and had special abilities and special, as we would now say, disabilities. I was different. Mm -hmm. And at the time that I was a kid reading all these comics, I, I loved X stories so much, and I wanted to live in that world. But the character who I thought I identified with was the Vision, the Avengers character. Interesting. Who was the most tragic example of someone trying to be a cishet guy
0: yeah i was just thinking that's really good
1: and failing
0: not good for your mental health but good as good as like a symbolic thing yeah and,
1: and machine man anytime there was a marvel universe android synthesoid, mechanical person who wanted to be a guy and get the girl and absolutely couldn't because it was just not possible because they were synthetic and fake. I was there. Yeah. And I really only gradually realized after I had been away from X-Comics for a while, and I would like to say that I spent everybody, almost everyone who's seriously into superhero comics as an adult, has this moment in their teen years or 20s where they just walked away for a while. I would like to say that I walked away when... Claremont quit the books and they started becoming incredibly uneven and often bad. In fact, I walked away before that. I missed all of Excalibur the first time and I've gone uh, back and read tragic. Excalibur as an adult. And it it's
0: good. So good.
1: But I realized when I started to think about how to write about comics and whether I wanted to write about comics and why I cared so much about mutants as an adult, that Kitty, as she was then was the character in whom I saw myself now that I wasn't sad all the time. And that was honestly part of realizing that I wasn't just someone with an interesting relationship to gender, but in fact, a trans woman and a binary trans woman and someone who, as soon as I felt like it wouldn't screw up everything else in my life and blow up my life, that maybe I wanted to transition. And that the Mm -hmm. moment I felt like I could, I did.
0: When was that?
1: So I came out as trans four times. Um, I came out as trans to some friends, including the woman I would later marry and am delightfully still married to.
0: We love to see it.
1: In the mid-90s. Oh, wow. And then I came out as, uh, as we said then, a cross-dresser and somebody with a complicated gender and who knows. Sure. And do I think that I want to transition medically and socially, I don't know, ask me again later, probably not, um, in the late 90s. And then I sort of buried that in order to do just other things. I was just like, and this is a very common thing for trans girls who grow up with relative privilege and who are really lucky in our earlier lives, And you see it in in memoirs like Jenny Boylan's memoir. I thought I'm going to be a guy for as long as I can stand to be a guy and not let people down and get other things that I want. And then I just got to a point where I was like, I I have to be a physical, visible person in the world and started writing about being a girl inside Mm -hmm. and presented as a girl in some places and as a guy in others from like 2011 to 2017. We had been in New Zealand, where I was visible in like New Zealand academia, and people who had like kids who were transitioning wanted to talk about gender would show up and say, let's talk about poetry, and like, by the way, I think that my teen is trans.
0: By the way, help, right, yeah.
1: (laughs) Right, right, and I kind of got used to that, but I also didn't really feel that I was fully a member of a queer community Mm -hmm. yet. I still felt a little fake.
0: You have to sort of raise your hand and go like me, you know, before that community finds you.
1: That's right. That's right. And I just, I, I, I was afraid of blowing up my life. Right. And this will get back to talking about, this will get back to Kate. It became clear that I really could count on, on support that I wasn't going to become a, a, like that I wasn't going to blow up my life and become a bad parent or a bad partner. And it wasn't going to super let people down if I transitioned. The minute that became clear, I realized that I wasn't going to be a bad person for transitioning and got the signals from people I was close to. And one person in particular, I called Fenway Health and I was like, hi, I'm a trans woman. I need to get an appointment for hormones. Right.
0: I mean, everybody at their own pace, right?
1: I know. I just, I, I, yeah,
0: yeah. Even just in, like, cis gay world, I know people who came out late and have all kinds of guilty feelings about it.
1: Cis gay people coming out gradually or coming out later in life or coming out and having people say, oh, I always knew is a very Iceman topic.
0: Tony and I talked about that in the Iceman episode because our experiences, I mean... You know, not to go into his business, but our experiences were very different. I was essentially outed to the world when I was 16. And I decided to go with it rather than deny it. And I've just lived that way ever since. Uh You know, I had a very supportive family. You know, I had an environment where I felt comfortable. For a lot of people, they just don't have that. Yeah. And when it's something as momentous as a gender transition, something that thankfully more people are starting to understand but certainly in the 90s yeah as i'm sure you know better than me you know it was something that was portrayed in media as a joke as a uh, freakish or
1: as at best as something that was pitiable yeah and if, if you were trans it was really terrible and you could maybe have a good life but you'd have to completely blow up your old life yeah. And I knew I didn't want that. And this is ex- this is, is Kate relevant in a couple of different ways. One is that this character was there for me. And I could see so much of myself in the decisions that she made and the life course that she had, if I was willing to translate it.
0: Because Kitty kind of dips in and out of the mutant closet, essentially, for a long time. And
1: she's aware that being... Visible as a mutant is a choice for her, and she gives that great speech in the, in I think all new thirteen, written by Bendis.
0: Yeah, the response to the remainder uncanny right, Avengers right
1: speech, and even before that, she's someone who can pass if she wants to, and she's someone who, compared to almost everyone around her, has in a lot of ways been through less. She has had a stable childhood. She has reasonably supportive parents. She's every so often been kidnapped and brainwashed. I mean, who hasn't?
0: Especially somebody in a Chris Claremont book. I mean, that's sort of a dime a dozen experience. Right,
1: but she hasn't been held prisoner for years. She hasn't had her... I don't think she's ever had her body taken over by another consciousness and used as a puppet for a long time.
0: Ogun did for a minute.
1: Ogun did, but it it lasted... Uh, Three issues of one mini three issues. Yeah, which I think in 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 universe, that's like a day or two. And she came out of it with a new name, a new costume, and new powers. And she was a ninja and a, a new sense of how much Wolverine would take care of her. So that was
0: a positive experience overall.
1: I think, I think she would say that. I think she would say that sucked. No one should have to be possessed by Ogun. But
0: it was empowering for her, ultimately.
1: It was literally empowering, right. She's often the least traumatized, most privileged person in a room of her peers, which I also identify with.
0: I reread Mechanics for this. It's good. For those who are not familiar, Mechanics is a six-issue miniseries that Chris Claremont did during his run on Extreme X-Men in the aughts. It's a story about Kitty in college.
1: At the University of Chicago.
0: Yep, at U Chicago, bartending, essentially trying to live a normal life, not out as a mutant to her classmates. And what's interesting is that the supporting character throughout is Shan Ma, Karma. Yeah. Another character who can pass essentially and it turns out unbeknownst to either of them they both are at u chicago i think karma's gotten a job there as a a librarian librarian. she's got a library degree. yeah karma has the most dramatic backstory save perhaps iliana of the new mutants she's a vietnamese boat refugee her mother is raped in front of her and then killed she is then raped at like 14 by pirates She has to protect her siblings. She has this horrific experience. And in the first issue of The New Mutants ongoing back in the 80s, Danny's big mistake is that she accidentally pulls that memory out of Karma's head. Oh, yeah. So it's the tone setter for New Mutants because Karma gets written out of that book pretty quickly. And then when she comes back, she's possessed by the Shadow King who transforms her body in ways that she's uncomfortable with. I do too. I do too.
1: And if you just... If you just took that storyline out of it, that would be a perfect run of comics.
0: Yeah, I hate... You know, I I love Chris Claremont. There are a couple things about him that have not aged well, let's say. One of them is...
1: He's not good with the diversity of body types that humans have.
0: Correct. Like, he has a thing about fat villains. It's just a thing that he does a lot of the time. Obesity as sort of a shorthand for moral failing. Yeah, Even when he comes back, like, Tullamore Vosges is the same vibe.
1: Yeah, it's, it's not good.
0: It symbolizes excess, you know? Like, it's like a hedonistic thing. Yeah. And the other thing is that he was the 70s and 80s equivalent of a weeb, right? Like, there's a lot of Orientalist stuff. And so Karma kind of hits both of those unfortunate buttons in his work. I'm excited to dig into that character at some point later this year because I really love her, but she's a character who I think has been very underserved. But mechanics is interesting because the first thing Kitty does when they are reunited and she's seeing Leong and Na and all of that is she explains who Karma is to the reader in like a monologue. And then without overtly bringing up the rape stuff, she refers to the fact that she and karma were both students at xavier's but that karma had been through a lot more in her life before ever getting there that's right then kitty
1: and kitty is someone who often thinks about how to use her relative privilege yes she has passing privilege she has white privilege she has the sense that adults will support the choices she makes And she's used to being around people who do not have that or who did not grow up with that. And she wants to take care of them.
0: And feels the obligation almost to step up and be the person on the soapbox because she knows that someone like Kurt, for example, can't do that and be
1: received well. That's right. And she repeatedly, when Claremont writes her, contemplates running for public office and thinks about how to be publicly visible.
0: He's obsessed with the idea of her becoming president.
1: The last time Claremont wrote a a Kate story, which was a couple of years ago in the the holiday special, uh, she thought about running for president. And it was very hard to take that seriously. But at the end of Mechanics, she contemplates getting involved in local politics, which is great. More mutants should do that.
0: Yeah. And at the end of the end, she is president. Yeah. With Rachel as the First Lady, although it's not said on page. He actually, I haven't read it yet, but he actually wrote another story just this year for Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood with Wolverine and Kate in the present. So I'm keen to take a peek at that it's like very new i haven't read it. i yet. haven't read it either so i haven't dug into that yet it's not part of like the helpful Krakoa checklist at the end of the exactly issues the, the people so doing i doing <laughs> the, the
1: hickman the, the hickman run comics checklists aren't actually encouraging you to read those
0: you know i'm already buying a lot of comic <laughs> yes. books so if it's not in that list like i bought niciasis juggernaut which was not on that list but i haven't picked up the black white and blood issues yet back to you so
1: back to me and to my history with, with Kate, that this is... And and the more I realized that I really was a girl, mm-hmm. and, I mean, I hope I'm a very... I hope I'm a responsible adult and a good parent and do the things that adults ethically need to do, but girl is actually the common English noun that best identifies my gender, <laughs> like it or not. <laughs> uh, the more I realized how thoroughly I was a girl, the more I realized how much I saw myself in all of the versions of, of Kate that I liked reading about. And the more thoroughly I realized that what what I needed was queer community and trans community. And that increasingly, at the same point that I was coming out, was and you know has been and, and still is X-Fan community. Mm-hmm. I would not be the same person without a handful of people who are also ex-fans. And without a handful of people, I've become super close to, and I don't know that they'd all want to be too, like singled out and named on this podcast. But I, I'm conscious of having community in a way that I, I didn't used to, and of having collaborators and people I'm really close to, and having a team and being on a team. And a lot of that has to do with... Ex community and some of which I'm just going to single, single it out. I discovered the Jay and miles podcast at about episode 10.
0: Lucky. Cause I found it when they were like a hundred episodes in and I was like, Oh yeah. shit. So I've never heard the whole thing. Cause it feels so scary to, to get through the whole backlog. I jump around. You will
1: eventually, you will eventually. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I, I jump around. I'm caught up and I discovered it early. Not cause I have destiny's power set, but because, uh, People there in in Portland were friends with my friend. I discovered it indirectly through Douglas Wolk, the, the great comics critic. Mm-hmm. His book on reading all of the comics that Marvel published between 1961 and 2017 will be out from Penguin late this year. But because of Douglas, I discovered the podcast. And the more queer the podcast got, the more... I realized that there were reasons why I was seeing myself in imagined mutant communities, right? And it—I mean—it goes beyond that. Also, I was one of those people who was singled out quite early as, like, oh, she's gonna get A's. She'll probably go to Harvard, which I, in fact, did. Um, so <laughs> I got the whole like child genius nonsense and I, you know, I, I can't rewire a computer.
0: Which is also part of Kate's backstory. I mean, Kitty is a Wunderkind.
1: Not only is a Wunderkind, but is treated as such by adults. Yeah. She doesn't have to do some of the things that later Marvel tech Wunderkinds like Riri Williams, who actually has to struggle against her environment to assert herself as a genius that she is at, at one point. Kate gets support for being a genius quite early and her struggle is not to exercise her powers she's surrounded by adults who want to help her do that her struggle is to be a full person one of the things that i show to people to say you know if you want to understand me take a look at this are the pages from uncanny 139 when aurora takes kitty to meet stevie hunter yeah this is your dance lesson this is an adult who's gonna treat you as an awesome kid who wants to have a body and have a social life and enjoy being in the world in a way that is not at all dependent on your special talents that you're the best at.
0: Right, and a reminder of the home that you have chosen to leave behind because you loved your ballet class and you can have a dance class here even while you're training in your mutant gifts. We don't want to take that from you. That's right,
1: and that's also extremely gendered, right? Like, no one gave me ballet lessons. They thought I was a guy. Right, right. Like, I didn't tell them I was a girl, I didn't know, Though she does meet Doug at Stevie Hunter's dance class. That's right. That's right. But Doug is a soft boy. Doug is a soft boy and.
0: And is allowed to be by his family, so.
1: That's right. That's right. And at the same time as sort of teen Kate is struggling to figure out what kind of adult responsibilities she can assume and wants, at one point, she doesn't really like being left alone on Christmas. And, you know, saves the mansion. Yeah. And at another point, she doesn't want to be with the ex-babies and and the famous, the iconic panel of her saying, Professor Professor Xavier is a is a jerk. He is, in fact, a jerk. But the thing that he decides should happen in that comic that causes her to say he's a jerk is not a great example of his jerkitude. It's him deciding that she would benefit from having a peer group.
0: Right, that she should be in a class with other teenagers rather than going into battle with Wolverine.
1: Which is not wrong!
0: No, he's correct. And honestly, the only reason that he goes back on it is because the writer wanted to keep her on the X-Men team. It doesn't make a ton of sense that she gets to stay on the X-Men team when Karma, who is six years older than her, has to be a new mutant. Well, you know what I mean? Her
1: argument, which I would give some weight to, is that the new mutants are the new mutants because they need to learn how to use their powers and they're not ready to save the world. And she's saved the world several times. So, so I could go either way on whether she belongs with the X-Men
0: I just mean if we're looking at it rationally and she's 14 years old. That's right. You know, and we, we escape the superhero logic she's, for a moment. She's almost
1: she's almost 15.
0: Right, yeah, you know, but she's not 15 until Excalibur. That's right,
1: and she has saved the world a couple times, so in her mind he's being a jerk, but he does have a, a point.
0: What's jerky about it is that he doesn't trust the rest of the X-Men when they disagree yeah storm is like i don't think that's correct and he's just sort of like well i know what's best but he hasn't been in the field with them so he doesn't know what he's
1: talking about also if you find yourself disagreeing with storm you're wrong
0: usually you're incorrect that's right yeah the only time you're correct is in her weird cop phase and extreme which is just not
1: oh that's fair that's fair
0: claremont gets a little cop happy sometimes especially in the 21st century and you're like, what is? What is going on here? What that's, is this? That's- Storm is so not a cop that it's like yeah. a very weird
1: turn, that brief. Yeah. But
0: otherwise, I would completely agree. Yeah. She's pretty much always right.
1: Yeah. And Kate is used to looking up to adults and has the ability to look up to multiple adults. And she's trying to figure out what she's expected to grow up to be, which again, and she's conscious of this, she's fortunate in that she's she's never really neglected. She's sometimes treated badly. Right. And she's certainly inappropriately sexualized. Yes. And we can get to that. Although she's she's inappropriately sexualized by people who think they're her peers, whether or not they are. right? But she's never neglected. And she's thinking a lot about whether she should grow up to be what the adults expect her to be. Or whether there's something else that she can be. And she quits superheroing repeatedly. Yeah. In order to see whether she wants to do something else.
0: She's a bit like Havoc and Polaris that way. A couple different times she says, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm
1: out. I would actually I don't think she's like Havoc and Polaris because what Kate's doing, she quits at one point out of grief. One of the, yes. the better nineties stories, she quits out of grief.
0: It's never because she doesn't want to be a mutant, which is Havoc and Polaris's struggle. That's right. But it is similarly I was pressed into this as a teenager. I don't know if this is the life I want to lead.
1: That's right. And she's also against separatism. I wrote a a piece about this a a while ago.
0: Yeah, I I read that.
1: Oh, oh, thank you. Yeah. Defending God Loves Man Kills 2.
0: I reread God Loves Man Kills 2 after I read that, which is your fault, and I'm still upset that I did it. But you know what? (sighs) No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I just don't, I don't think that story is very good. However, I think that the thematic points you raise in it about her Judaism in particular and the way that she approaches Judaism Thank you. are interesting. And it made me want to reread the story.
1: Yeah. I don't know anyone else who likes that story and it's badly paced. About half that story is really didn't need to be there. And it's the, the parts that don't involve Kitty. Uh, but the, the, the stuff that Claremont is doing with Kitty and the stuff that, that Dawn of X era comics are doing with Kitty where she can't go through the gates. She is not just a representative of American Jewish identity and of American, really, reform and conservative Jewish identity because orthodoxy is its own thing. Yes. She's also a representative of the kind of diasporic identity.
0: Someone who doesn't want to make Aliyah, doesn't want to go to Israel, has no interest in that.
1: I think she wouldn't mind visiting, but she doesn't... She has the feeling that that America is her home, and she wants she wants to be able to be a bridge. She wants to be able to be a figure through whom members of the disfavored group or the minority group and members of the majority group can communicate and learn that they have things in common. And she wants to do that without ever being closeted. But she wants to use her visibility and she wants to prove that she can do things in the human world. And and also, I mean, she's not just someone who's spent Uh, As she says in uh, Bendis' written issue, all the time since her bat mitzvah almost, being a superhero. Right. She's also spent so much time in school, and she wants sometimes to show that she can be someone outside of school. And this gets also back to, you know, why I see myself so hard in her. And we've even lived in the same places.
0: I'm sitting in Westchester right now. I mean, I grew up here.
1: Oh, yeah. I've, I've lived in Westchester, but not for a while.
0: Salem Center would be around the corner if it existed.
1: Oh, oh, that's lovely. Yeah, no, the, the thing where you you move to England in the 90s and you make new friends and you, <laughs> you try to figure out exactly how queer you can be. Uh, and then you and then you move back and you kind of mishandle yourself for a bit.
0: Oh, like
1: I did that. And I taught in Minnesota for seven years and I love the Twin Cities and I'm and, um, close people there and I'm loyal to it. And I really had the feeling that I was going to somehow end up at the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And that's not what happened. But instead, I had the very Kate experience of I used to go to the school and now I'm a teacher. And it's kind of weird because the students remind me of me, but I'm a grown up and I don't feel like one. Right. And like my teachers are still here. The people who taught me when I was young, and didn't understand who I was. But like was rewarded by adults for being smart, they're still here.
0: Right. And that is, of course, Kate's exact experience from Uh roughly schism on. Even before that, really, the Whedon run is kind of where that begins, I guess.
1: Yeah. From the the moment when she ends up back at the school, which is after God Loves, Man Kills 2. Right. All the way to Age of X-Men and Disassembled.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, until the school structure is done away with.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot not to like about the Jason Aaron Wolverine and the X-Men, but one of the things that that comic does get right is that it makes sense for her to be the assistant principal. She knows how to run a school, she knows what a classroom is, she knows how to deal with the outside world, and she knows how to get along with Wolverine, who doesn't automatically know any of those things.
0: I have a lot of trouble buying a lot of stuff in that room. Oh,
1: there's <laughs> other... I mean... That anyone who decides to give her a fake pregnancy and make that a major plot line, you have to ask, why are you doing that?
0: The shocker is that it wasn't Whedon, because he loves that one. Well, The traumatic right. mystical pregnancy. That's like one of his favorite right,
1: right, tropes. Right, right. The part of the Aaron run that is about Kitty being an administrator.
0: It made sense that Wolverine would ask her to do it, because, you know, that's nepotism, right? She's certainly the smartest person he knows. He trained her himself and all that. He trusts her. I don't know. It's it was just it felt a little abrupt to me. I think
1: she would do it because after schism, where else is she going to go?
0: I found schism stupid, so that was sort of the bigger issue for me.
1: One of the fun things about reading that line of where Kate goes through the twenty teens is when Battle of the Atom happens and All New Dupe happens, and I I kind of love All New Dupe. Kate realizes that her place is. Probably with the revolutionary team.
0: Well, that's the part that I really like, is when she realizes, oh, I shouldn't be here at all. Yeah. I should be with Scott. That's really good. That's a good twist. Yeah.
1: The, the strangeness of that choice, though, and it, it suggests writers who understood the character but weren't necessarily talking to each other as well mm-hmm. as they could be, is that it makes sense during Battle of the Atom to be shipping her with Rachel, and to be breaking her up with Bobby. And Peter Milligan, who I really very rarely think about, I've never gotten into ecstatics, I just don't think of Peter Milligan very much, but in All New Duke, he does a very good job, and Duke realizes, first, that he's this sort of bizarre, green, floating pile of garbage, and that he is no worse than all of the other sketchy dudes who've wanted to marry kitty but no better
0: right i like when he offers to convert to judaism if that would make her want to marry him and she's just like please don't do that that would be very strange yeah uh
1: the shade thrown on all of the previous people who've written kitty as thinly disguised attempts to gary stew themselves into being her boyfriend so all new dupe which is lovely and and funny and gets who kate is at that point correct tries very hard to ship her with Rachel and then she joins the Uncanny team and immediately she's back to being this person who finally is reunited with the love of her life, Illyana (laughs) Rasputin. And Bendis has, I think, unique among all of the people who have really written her since Claremont, has the ability both to understand why she might make bad choices in men and to honor her bisexuality and to see just how deep and rich and delightful her dynamic with Ileana Rasputin is.
0: Well, listen, here's the fact of the matter. In the Bobby episode, the question of like, should Bobby have been bi is raised like an I affirmatively said, no, that's a character whose arc makes much more sense if he's gay and has been closeted. Yes. Kitty Pride, now Kate Pride, is a bisexual character. Yep, yep. Always has been. And in part, yeah. that's because Chris Claremont wrote Everyone Bisexual and Kitty Pride was his protagonist, right? <laughs> that's never been in question to me. However, mm-hmm. I would also say there has never been a question to me that her only healthy romantic attachments are with women. That's right. Literally for the last 41 years of
1: publication. That's correct.
0: You know, the problem with having Kate come out on page now is that to me it's very clear that kitty and rachel are dating at the end of extreme that's right to me it's like mystique and destiny it's there on the page and it was happening and we just weren't allowed to be told about it and so i'm of two minds because on the one hand i'd love to see these things play out on the page on the other hand i feel like kate and rachel should be exes And, like, they could get back together. But it should be in a relationship that retroactively already existed, I think. But then there are people who say they would feel cheated if it had all happened off-page. So I don't know.
1: The arc of Uncanny, which is one of the last Claremont-written arcs, where Rachel becomes a dinosaur. Yeah. That happens after Extreme, right? Mm Mm-hmm. It's after Extreme, but before the giant bullet nonsense. Yes. One of my favorite and also my least favorite sequences in that arc and i am you have probably already gathered this i am someone who will usually defend late claremont like not all of it but i like more of it than anyone else i know dinosaur rachel comes back from the savage land and she's still a little dinosaur-y and she hasn't seen kate in a while and there kate is sitting in the mansion and snuggling with peter yeah and rachel is like I'll come back later. And it's very clear that this is meant as I went to the Savage Land and became a dinosaur. And I don't know what you thought that was, but I thought we were dating and you didn't even tell me that you were back with your ex. Right. Who's a man. Who's a man.
0: Which is charged. Who's a man. Yeah.
1: And that feels very real. And a lot of Kate's decisions about who she's dating and who she kisses on page feel very real to me in that she thinks she's supposed to be with a guy. Yeah. She has a particular sense that she owes things to Colossus.
0: Which is really
1: fucked up. Which is really (laughs) fucked up and it recurs until X-Men Over
0: and over until the wedding issue.
1: Yeah. Until the wedding issue the best way that's handled is in San Francisco at the end of Fear Itself where there's a whole drama of... Ileana trying to sacrifice herself to get the spirit of, uh, I think it's Ciderac, out of the Juggernaut.
0: Ciderac. Although it later turns out that it was all a ruse, but, you know, that's kind of...
1: Yeah, but at the time... That is a retcon. Right. And Kate says, I know you're willing to die for me, Piotr, but I, I, don't, I want someone who will live for me. Right. And it's her way of saying, I am done with your self dramatizing, self sacrificing, self destructive bullshit.
0: Well, his obsession with heroic suicide missions. That's right. He's all about sacrificing himself for the greater good. I mean, he's introduced as the ultimate community good, right? right. Like, he is the socialist character. And as the character evolves and the sliding timescale moves him away from the Soviet union, the way that that remains consistent is in his constant need to sacrifice himself for the group.
1: That's right. And he's very into making dramatic gestures. And one of the things that Kate keeps running into is men who want to make dramatic gestures for her. Right, And when she's, quite young when she's 13, 14, 15, and however old Warren Ellis believed her to be.
0: I think she's supposed to be 18 in the Ellis Excalibur, but she turns 18 again because Claremont disagreed.
1: There's moments in the Ellis Excalibur, like bar scenes, that are really fun, but I generally find it unreadable. Because he just doesn't know enough about the characters who he's inherited to write them.
0: After Lobdell Excalibur, which I just fucking hated, yeah. Ellis Excalibur felt like a breath of fresh air. So there was that.
1: <laughs> That's a really low par.
0: I mean, listen, I liked the kitty and wisdom relationship at the time my issue with all of kitty's romantic relationships and like very pointedly kitty's romantic relationships yeah is when i was reading all of this stuff kitty was older than me from the 80s issues which i was reading as a little kid because my dad had them to the 90s issues that were coming out when i was a tween kitty was always older than me and so the age gaps never registered to me the way that I think they would have if I wasn't A, identifying with her as sort of a peer, but also thinking of her as a grown-up in a way that I wasn't. Because if I'm reading it at 11 and she's like 13 and has boobs and is dating, it just doesn't, I didn't think of her as a child. Oh, I read
1: it, I, I, I read it the same way.
0: And in Excalibur, she definitely felt like an adult. Whereas now when I look back and I'm like, Pete Wisdom's probably, what, 30? Yeah. At the youngest? It's just, so that's not ideal.
1: It's gross, but he's gross.
0: Right. The thing is that, and this is just unavoidable, the things that young women have or women who were young at the time have now said about Warren Ellis's behavior towards them makes that relationship in retrospect a lot more unpleasant to me than I found it at the time is I guess what I'll say.
1: I was not reading those comics as they came out. I have read them as part of an attempt to catch up with the character. I was reading them as they came out.
0: And I was like 10? Yeah. <laughs> no, so... and I
1: was I was 10 when Kitty was falling for Pyotr. And I was still reading the issues as they came out when Kitty and, and Ilyana become a thing. And that's clearly a lot healthier. And I didn't understand why what I wanted for myself, and why I wanted it for myself. And now that I know that I'm a gay woman, like, it all makes sense. Yeah, I
0: mean, that's an aha moment. It sure is. Are you saying you were a Jewish nerd who slowly realized that she was a gay woman? (laughs) Because I I guess that does seem a little bit like Kate's journey, doesn't it? (laughs) You think? I mean... Not that, for anybody listening, not that I'm saying she's not bi, but I do think that her stronger emotional attachments are, are with women. Well, I do. oh,
1: absolutely, yeah. Also, she's not trans. Like, she's a cis woman. There are ex-characters who, I-, I love reading them as trans, like Emma.
0: Emma as a trans woman is a reading that I think is really fascinating. I mean, it's obviously not canon, but... It has never been contradicted. Well, only in the terrible Emma Frost ongoing, which I choose not to acknowledge
1: anyway. Oh, Okay. Okay, I think there's some some good stuff in that, but I uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so traps that we can fall into when talking about Kate are one getting diverted to a discussion of Emma, and two, and yeah. is a much more common trap: she has to struggle not to be defined by the men she's with,
0: by the relationships, right? Yeah, which
1: is, and specifically by the man. I don't I don't know that she would even object to having a lot of her life defined by Eliana and Rachel.
0: I mean the textual romantic relationships where they say on the page, this is her boyfriend.
1: If you've known...
0: I'm hearing some music in the background. I don't know what that is. That
1: is my awesome ninth grader playing the piano. And if we can leave it in the podcast, we should. Kate struggles not to be defined by her on-page romantic relationships with various inappropriate men who pursue her and crush hard on her. And that is true in general for a lot of women growing up under patriarchy and a lot of girls growing up under patriarchy it's especially true or true in a a a different way for girls who are nerd popular and girls who are in majority guy nerd spaces and i think Mm -hmm. that's probably less so than it used to be especially since The nerd spaces that I get to see, and that includes nerd spaces that are for people much younger than me.
0: There are more girls allowed.
1: And more out queer people and out non-binary people. And that certainly wasn't the case in the 80s. But the thing where you're a girl and you're just trying to figure out, like, trying to learn to code, and you actually would like someone to kiss you and, like, to have the experience of, of dating someone... And you don't think of yourself as especially hot or attractive because you feel awkward. Right,
0: which Kitty never does.
1: Kitty doesn't usually think of herself as attractive, right?
0: Kitty is always, particularly when she's standing next to Phoenix and Storm.
1: Or to Ilyana, where they they have that that, uh, Westchester School dance issue, Mm -hmm. where no one will dance with Kitty. Right. She doesn't feel conventionally attractive. She doesn't feel like guys think she's hot in the way that they do think Ilyana's hot and of course Ilyana never wants to sleep with any of them no because she's so gay
0: because Ilyana's a lesbian
1: right right (laughs) right. Uh, but nerdy guys all crush out on Kitty
0: yeah Doug is obsessed with her
1: throwing themselves at her and the one who's closest to her in age and personality there's just no chemistry it's Doug
0: right she doesn't see him that way.
1: Right. And that's that's actually a model for sort of tween boy readers, what to do if you have a crush on your best friend and your best friend doesn't want to kiss you.
0: In terms of she's just not that into you, he handles it very that's well. That's right.
1: And and that's, I think that relationship is something that Claremont and the team around him, whoever's there, you know, it's got to include and asante and louise simonson at that point
0: and asante and louise simonson were editing stuff yeah
1: claremont is doing that i think deliberately and beautifully as a model for this is this is what to do if you're that age and you've got this crush and it's not reciprocated at the same time the thing where girls who are super nerd popular aren't sure what to do with older boys or men who have status in the community
0: someone like piotr
1: Someone like Piotr, right. And you also, you you have this feeling of attraction and you don't know where to put it. I feel like the bad decisions that Kitty makes about men, they feel very real. They feel very credible.
0: I related to them, certainly. I mean, the fantasy of the upperclassmen, the jock. That's right. You know, you're a nerdy kid who doesn't think of yourself as particularly attractive. And this guy... I mean, Piotr is the dream to that person, right? right? He's tall, dark, and handsome, has huge muscles, is a perfect Greek god's physical specimen, Uh but also is very sweet. That's right. You know, is not a bad guy. I mean, we can make all kinds of arguments about the appropriateness of that relationship. I think it's particularly harmed by the sliding timescale, given that now it would have happened in a time when a lot more people would have found it objectionable than did at the time. But also... I think it is notable that while it gets a little further than it probably should with her age in consideration, he does stop her when she tries to like, he's chivalrous in a sense, which makes it again, more of kind of a fantasy and the Piotr of the nineties who kicks the shit out of Pete wisdom because he's upset that Kitty's dating someone new is a much more realistic version of the guy who would have dated someone that much younger than him. But the one in the eighties is like, Oh no, Kitty, like, we can't do that because you're too young. We can't have sex. Even if you want to, I won't do that. And then once he meets someone age appropriate in Secret Wars, when he meets the Saji, and he comes home, he's like, I want an adult relationship and I can't have that with you because it would be inappropriate. So we need to break up.
1: I find that I find all of that credible.
0: I do, too. I think it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I think he's so naive himself right. about these things that it doesn't come across as predatory on his part. That's right. It's still, I would say, inappropriate, but it doesn't feel like he's behaving towards her in a predatory way. That's
1: right. He's, he makes some bad decisions and some good decisions, and he's not malevolent.
0: Yeah, He shouldn't. The answer is no, I'm not going to date you. You're 14. Yeah. But yeah, I'd say of not making that correct decision. Yeah. He behaves in a way that is much better than I think. Yeah a lot of other men would have behaved. That's
1: that's right. And if, if you imagine them as 15 and 17 instead of 13 and 18 or 14 and 18... Part
0: of the problem is that, like, okay, he's 19 because you tell us that he's 19, but, like, he's drawn like he's 30.
1: Well, he's made of organic steel half the time he works I out. Know, I, know. If, I know, but I'm saying,
0: if it were... Like, for example, Karma is 19. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't have done it because it's two girls, but if they had had Kitty and Karma dating... Because of the way that they are drawn, it wouldn't feel, I think, as startling, especially to us looking at it now. That's right. Because Karma was drawn as an age mate of the New Mutants. She's a little taller than the rest of them because she's older. But otherwise, she looks like a teenager, whereas Colossus was never drawn as a teenager.
1: And that also tells you when Claremont and I guess it would have been Simonson and and whoever else is on that team figure out who's going to draw the New Mutants. There's a limited number of people at Marvel or in the mainstream comics industry who know how to draw teenagers who look like teenagers rather than models. Yeah,
0: like, I'm not a huge Brett Blevins guy, but Brett Blevins certainly drew those kids as teenagers. Yes,
1: as did Bob McCloud. And
0: Sienkiewicz, in his very ornate style, still did make them look young.
1: And Mary Wilshire, some of the best-looking New Mutants issues are Sienkiewicz inking Mary Wilshire. Yeah, It's so good and it's so right for the way that that book needed to look. The New Mutants are all teenagers and they needed those artists for those books. And so Kitty, who is, you know, guest in Uncanny, is usually in Uncanny in the 80s. (laughs) And she ends up, she's drawn by Paul Smith, who's the best. And then when she's a little older, she's drawn by Alan Davis, who draws her kind of as an adult, but it's great. It's Alan Davis.
0: Alan Davis in Excalibur draws her and Rachel certainly as looking not much younger than Brian and Megan, when they actually are.
1: That's right. It's okay.
0: I don't have a big problem with that because I think that in Excalibur, it's sort of like what I said actually about Cordelia in the transition from Buffy to Angel. And this is why it's very easy for Ellis, I think, when he comes in to not realize Kitty's still supposed to be 16.
1: She's so often teamed up with her, working with people who are not her peers. And the other thing that she wants, besides some time alone with Liliana, is a group of peers. She wants to have actual friends instead of people who will look at her and say, you're so smart, why don't you go into space with us?
0: At the same time, she rankles at the prospect of being put in a team of her peers. She refuses, she thinks she's better than the new mutants. She calls them the X-babies. She wants it both ways. She wants it both ways. She wants Ilyana and Doug and Rachel to be her peers and to be allowed to have a teenage experience. But she doesn't want to be treated like a kid ever by the x Which is very
1: real and is uh, for me and is part of the contradiction of having adults single you out and tell you you're so, so talented. It's the gifted kid It's the saying, gifted yeah. kid. Don't put me. Why are you putting me in the regular math class? I should be taking college math classes.
0: And Kitty is taking college math classes when she's introduced.
1: But she still wants to go to the dance.
0: One of my favorite bits in Excalibur is when evil Courtney tries to get Kitty into Oxbridge and the Oxbridge people are like, she hasn't actually had a formal education though. She's at this private institution that we know nothing about. I think that the idea, a genuine higher educational institution was like, I'm sorry, your diploma from... Xavier is not really like we don't I'm sorry we don't recognize that here at Cambridge yeah
1: (laughs) which is one of many reasons why the University of Chicago is a lovely place for her they have had a, a college admissions profile as they did in the 80s and 90s
0: right and it's home she's from Deerfield it makes sense as a especially after her father dies it makes sense as a return to the home before the x-men which it feels like it's what she's trying to do is find herself in the place where she was born
1: that's right when she's quit the team during extraordinary she's in chicago again and storm has to go to chicago to get her back
0: she's always going back to chicago whenever she's kind of in distress or backsliding or needs a moment or like trying to find a new path it's sometimes productive and sometimes not but she invariably winds up back in chicago well, I'm going to stop you right there because we're having so much fun that we're getting into the weeds a little bit. For newer readers and people who may not be up on Kate's complete history, I think it's a good time to segue into the Cerebro character file on Catherine Pride. This will be a bit of a wild ride because she has been through a lot. And then we will return for more with Dr. Stephanie Burt on this iconic character. X-Men, X-Men. Catherine Anne Pride, best known as Kitty Pride or Shadowcat, but lately styling herself Captain Kate Pride of the Marauder, Red Queen of the Hellfire Trading Company, is the teenage heroine of much of Chris Claremont's iconic run on Uncanny X-Men, and in the decades since her introduction has endured as a fan-favorite character. As the first explicitly Jewish superhero at Marvel Comics, she quickly became the lens through which the minority metaphor of the X-Men was most often refracted. Introduced in January 1980 in Uncanny X-Men 129, God Spare the Child, Kitty Pride is a 13-year-old girl from Deerfield, Illinois with a genius-level intellect. Her parents' marriage is falling apart, and she's suffering debilitating migraines that actually herald the awakening of her mutant power, the ability to become intangible, out of phase, and pass through solid matter. Kitty's courted as a student by two rival private schools, each secretly an institution for the training of mutants. Charles Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, home to the X-Men, and Emma Frost's Massachusetts Academy, the training ground of the nefarious Hellfire Club. Frost captures and tortures the X-Men while they're getting to know Kitty, and Kitty manages to call in the rest of the team for backup. In the process of making her escape to save the X-Men, she discovers her mutant power and learns that she disrupts electronic devices when she phases through them. Kitty's parents, Carmen and Teresa, are furious at her abrupt disappearance, but quickly change their tune when Jean Grey telepathically alters their minds. They decide to send Kitty to Xavier's After All, and she arrives just after the X-Men mourn Jean's death in the climax of the Dark Phoenix saga. Kitty's at first intimidated by Logan, a.k.a. Wolverine, and frightened of Kurt Wagner, a.k.a. Nightcrawler, but quickly bonds with Aurora Monroe, a.k.a. Storm, and develops a crush on the hunky older teen Pyotr Rasputin, a.k.a. Colossus. She's thrilled when Professor Xavier introduces her to Stevie Hunter, a local dance teacher who becomes another confidant. Taking the codename Sprite at Aurora's suggestion, Kitty begins training with the X-Men. But during her first Danger Room session, at the start of the famous Days of Future Past storyline, her mind switches places with the mind of Kate Pride, her future self from a dystopian timeline where mutants have been subjected to genocide at the hands of sentinel robots. Kate helps the X-Men prevent the assassination of Senator Robert Kelly, an anti-mutant politician, which is the critical event that leads to Kate's future. With that fate averted, Kate's consciousness departs, and Kitty resumes her training. Unbeknownst to the X-Men, Kate Pride finds the Days of Future Past timeline unchanged upon her return. Ur-616 had already diverged from Kate's timeline during the Dark Phoenix Saga. In Uncanny X-Men 143, Demon, Kitty is left alone in the mansion over Christmas and is attacked by, well, a demon. Though the Ungari creature is immune to her mutant powers, Kitty keeps a cool head and uses her scientific knowledge to kill it using the afterburners on the Blackbird, the X-Men's jet. After an encounter with Caliban, a misguided mutant with physical deformities who longs for companionship, Kitty realizes she's lucky to be a mutant who can pass for human. This epiphany changes her behavior toward Kurt, and the two become close friends. After angering Professor X by disrupting his computer systems and creating a hideous new costume without permission, Kitty stows away on the Blackbird when the X-Men go to investigate Magneto's latest plot. It's ultimately Kitty who stops Magneto's scheme to conquer the world, phasing through his computers and destroying them. Magneto attacks and almost kills her, realizing only after he believes her to be dead that she's actually a child. This experience rattles Magneto to his core and compels him to reveal for the first time his traumatic history as a Holocaust survivor. It is the first step on the villain's journey of redemption over the course of the 80s. Though Kitty gets better quickly enough, she's horrified when her parents, telepathically manipulated by Emma Frost, have her transferred to the Massachusetts Academy. Emma also steals Storm's body, and Kitty teams up with Aurora, trapped in Emma's body, to foil the Hellfire Club's plans. In the 1982 graphic novel God Loves, Man Kills, an out-of-continuity story that would retroactively become canonical some 20 years later, don't worry about it, Kitty and Kurt foil the evil plans of Reverend William Stryker, an evangelical preacher and obsessive anti-mutant bigot. In the pages of Uncanny, meanwhile, Kitty pursues a romantic relationship with Pyotr, despite being only 14 years old to his 19. When Pyotr's kid sister Ileana is lost in a hell dimension and returns to Earth abruptly seven years older, Kitty's age, the two girls become best friends and roommates. Not long afterward, Kitty's devastated when she's infected by a parasitic brood alien during a mission in space. Believing she will die, she asks Pyotr to have sex with her, but he refuses because of her age. The X-Men are cured of the brood infection, and Kitty meets a purple dragon alien who eventually follows her to Earth. Taking him as a pet, she names him Lockheed. Believing the X-Men dead, Professor Xavier and his colleague Dr. Moira McTaggart recruit a team of new teenage students they call the New Mutants. Upon Kitty's return to the mansion, Xavier tries to demote her to this junior squad, but she refuses, calling him a jerk. She proves herself by fighting off an alien invasion, and is allowed to remain with the X-Men. After another encounter with Caliban and his people, the sewer-dwelling mutants called the Morlocks, in which she's almost forced to marry Caliban to save the X-Men, but he relents, she abandons the codename Sprite and begins using the codename Ariel. She's initially alarmed when her mentor Aurora gets a dramatic makeover, shaving her hair into a mohawk and adopting an aggressive punk fashion sense. Kitty makes a new friend, Doug Ramsey, at Stevie Hunter's dance class. Doug is her age and loves the same nerdy stuff she does, and the two bond over their love of computers. Kitty's alarmed when Doug is offered a spot at the Massachusetts Academy and accompanies him to keep him safe on a campus visit. It turns out the whole thing is a trap set for Kitty by Emma Frost, though Doug is a mutant himself, unbeknownst to him. They're rescued by the New Mutants and returned to Xavier's. During the Secret Wars event, Pyotr falls in love with an alien healer named Zasaji, who is killed. When he returns to Earth, he tells Kitty about Zasaji and breaks up with her, feeling their age gap is insurmountable. Devastated, Kitty takes a leave of absence from the X-Men, leading to the 1984 miniseries Kitty, Pride, and Wolverine. It turns out Kitty's father, Carmen, a banker, is in debt to the Yakuza, don't worry about it, and she stows away on his plane to Tokyo. The evil psychic ninja Ogun kidnaps Kitty and brainwashes her, training her in the martial arts and making her his instrument to battle her mentor Wolverine. Kitty eventually shakes off the brainwashing with help from Logan and his friend Yukio and defeats the personality Ogun tried to implant in her by choosing Mercy. Embracing her ninja training, Kitty takes the new codename Shadowcat. When she gets back to the mansion, Kitty's surprised to see Rachel Summers, the newest member of the X-Men. She first met Rachel during Days of Future Past, when Rachel used her psychic abilities to swap the consciousnesses of the future Kate Pride and her past self. Rachel's now come back in time herself and is upset to find things not as she had expected them. Kitty's the first to bond with her, and the two quickly become friends. Kitty also bonds with Magneto, who has continued his journey of reformation and replaced a grievously injured Professor Xavier as the headmaster at the school. At a Holocaust memorial event, she learns Magneto had been a hero at Auschwitz and is stunned to learn he had known her great-aunt, a fellow prisoner whose unknown fate had always tormented Kitty's late grandfather. In New Mutants 45, Kitty befriends a local teenager named Larry Bodine. When he makes anti-mutant jokes in front of Kitty and her friends, Kitty cuts him off, and she's devastated when he later dies by suicide. After she realizes Larry was actually a mutant in hiding himself, afraid of discovery, she delivers a powerful speech at his funeral. During the 1986 franchise-wide event Mutant Massacre, Kitty is injured by the marauder called Harpoon, whose energy weapon disrupts her phased form while she saves her teammate Rogue from his attack. Kitty finds she's unable to become solid again and is trapped in a state of phase. Over time, her molecules begin to discorporate and the condition appears progressive. Though she contemplates suicide, she's saved by Mr. Fantastic and Dr. Doom, the arch enemies agreeing to work together after Mr. Fantastic's toddler son, Franklin Richards, takes up Kitty's cause. Still recovering from her injuries and requiring intense focus to become solid again, Kitty goes with the comatose Kurt, who was injured even more grievously in the massacre, to Muir Island, where they recuperate under the watchful eye of Dr. Moira McTaggart. They're left reeling when Doug Ramsey is murdered and the X-Men are apparently killed in Dallas in the 1988 franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants, but rally together with Rachel Summers and two new friends, Brian Braddock, a.k.a. Captain Britain, and his girlfriend Megan, to form the British superhero team Excalibur in an effort to preserve Xavier's dream. The team is launched into their own eponymous ongoing book written by Chris Claremont with art by Alan Davis. In the 1989 franchise-wide event Inferno, Kitty's forced into battle with Captain Britain and Megan after they're possessed by demons. She triumphs thanks to the sudden manifestation of the Soul Sword, Ilyana's mystical weapon. But she's heartbroken to later discover this is because Ilyana sacrificed herself to stop the demonic invasion. The teenage Ilyana, who was her best friend, is gone, restored to childhood as though she never fell into limbo in the first place. When Kitty returns to England, she finds the Soul Sword embedded in a stone outside Excalibur's lighthouse headquarters, waiting for her. She refuses to claim it. In her early adventures with Excalibur, Kitty develops a crush on Alistair Stewart, the chief scientist at the Weird Happenings organization, but Alistair only has eyes for a completely ambivalent Rachel. Kitty's horrified when Excalibur faces off against their alternate selves from an Earth where the Nazis won World War II, forced to reckon with a version of herself who is an emaciated slave tortured into collaboration with Nazi forces. Sending the Nazi Excalibur back to their world accidentally activates the peculiar robot Widget, who begins teleporting Excalibur to various alternate Earths in the event called the Crosstime Caper. Unbeknownst to anyone, Widget is actually the future Kate Pride. Do not worry about it, this plot is super complicated. During the Caper, the team meets a number of analogues of the Omniversal Magistrix, Opaluna Saturnine, an interdimensional bureaucrat who Kitty can't help but admit she finds stunningly beautiful. The various saturnines on other earth seem to take a particular interest in kitty one of them the witch anjali becomes the first person kitty ever kills impaling her from behind with a sword to rescue the barbarian princess kimry not long after this kitty is separated from the rest of excalibur and cast through another of widget's portals back to earth 616. there she's embraced by captain britain's ex-girlfriend wealthy banker courtney ross who bears a shocking resemblance to saturnine Courtney encourages Kitty to make bolder choices and take what she wants, throwing Kitty a lavish 15th birthday party that involves a shopping trip to Paris on a private jet. There is an undeniable erotic charge to this particular mentorship, in a surprisingly explicit example of homoeroticism in the classic period of the X Men franchise. Unbeknownst to Kitty, Courtney is actually the evil Opal Lun Satur9, a fascist dictator version of Saturnine from Another Earth, who murdered Courtney, Earth 616's version of Saturnine, some months earlier and took her place. When British university officials refuse to accept Kitty's transcripts from Xavier's, Courtney helps her enroll at the prestigious St. Cyril School for Girls in order to shore up her academic CV. During an event at the school, she crosses paths with Excalibur, returned from the cross-time caper, and helps them defeat the evil mutant Mesmero. Delighted, she rejoins the team. Not long after this, under new writer and artist Alan Davis, Satyr Nine reveals her true identity and attacks Excalibur, leaving Kitty confused and traumatized at the realization that her friend, Courtney, was actually a villain deceiving her all along. Excalibur soon learns that the X-Men actually survived the events of Fall of the Mutants, but Kitty, Kurt, and Rachel decide to remain with Excalibur, having bonded with their new teammates and found new purpose as a European extension of the Xavier mission. After a number of creative overhauls that include the departures of Chris Claremont and Alan Davis from the X-Men franchise, Kitty returns to Xavier's briefly when child Ileana becomes terminally ill with the legacy virus, a new immunodeficiency disease affecting only mutants. Piotr, devastated with grief, joins Magneto's acolytes, and Kitty agrees to deceive him in an effort to help Professor Xavier figure out whether he's being mind-controlled. It turns out Piotr is acting of his own free will, and he's furious at Kitty for manipulating him. After losing Rachel into the time stream, don't worry about it, Kitty is shocked during the 1994 franchise-wide event Phalanx Covenant by the arrival of Doug Locke, a techno-organic being who looks exactly like the late Doug Ramsey. Kitty is uncomfortable around him, but accepts him as a new teammate. The Soul Sword continues to call out to Kitty, who gives it to Kurt's girlfriend Amanda Sefton for safekeeping which eventually turns out to be a big mistake when Amanda's mother, the nefarious sorceress Margali Sardish, gets a hold of it and uses its power to do some big evil schemes as the Red Queen of the London branch of the Hellfire Club. Under new writer Warren Ellis, Kitty begins a romantic relationship with Pete Wisdom, an older man who works as a secret agent for Black Air, a successor to the Weird Happenings organization. Together they uncover Black Air's secretly sinister activities, and Wisdom joins Excalibur. Their happiness is interrupted by the arrival of Pyotr, who has left the Acolytes and come looking for Kitty. Outraged that Kitty's found happiness with someone new, Piotr attacks Wisdom and nearly kills him. Though Kitty and Kurt are angry with Piotr, they understand he's having a psychological breakdown in the wake of Ilyana's death and try to help him recover. Over time, Kitty begins to believe Douglock truly is Doug Ramsey reborn. Douglock insists he isn't, and Kitty finally accepts the truth when she phases into Doug's grave and finds his corpse still inside it. Kitty then takes an internship as an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., don't worry about it, where she develops an attraction to another intern, a young man named Rigby Fallon. In the same way that her friendship with Doug made her once question her relationship with Pyotr years earlier, her friendship with Rigby makes her question whether her relationship with Wisdom is sustainable or healthy given their age difference. New writer Ben Robb has Kitty decide to break up with Wisdom, who departs in anger. Shortly thereafter, Excalibur disbands upon the marriage of Captain Britain and Megan, and Kitty, Kurt, and Pyotr return to the X-Men. The Destiny's Diaries plot isn't really something you need to worry about, but it first crops up around this time, when Kitty discovers that one of Destiny's Diaries is addressed to her, just something that might be interesting in the future, given Destiny's thematic prominence in the current books. Kitty takes a leave of absence from the X-Men and lives for a time on Genosha, where she has some sort of revelatory experience. When she returns to the team, under returning writer Chris Claremont, she takes on a more rebellious posture, cutting her hair short and using one of Wolverine's broken bone claws as a weapon. This leads into a conflict with the mutant subculture called the Neo, do not worry about it, after one of their numbers seduces Kitty because of his belief that she is one of them. At the end of this storyline, Kitty decides not to return to the team and disappears for a bit. She returns after Pyotr dies to end the legacy virus, scattering his ashes in his native Russia and informing Professor Xavier by letter that she wants to do something new with her life. This leads into the miniseries Mechanics by Chris Claremont, where Kitty's enrolled at the University of Chicago pursuing a PhD in astrophysics, not revealing to her classmates that she's a mutant and working as a bartender. She struggles to cope with the recent death of her father, Carmen, one of the few human residents of Genosha who died in the genocide committed there by Cassandra Nova. Using her hacking talent, she manages to find security footage of her father's death and watches as he looks directly into the camera and tells her he loves her. Kitty comes into conflict with Purity, an anti-mutant student organization on campus, and teams up with former new mutant Sean Koiman, a.k.a. Karma, and telekinetic Genoshin survivor Shola Nkose to stop Purity's evil plans. Just when she thinks she's out, she gets dragged back in. Reverend William Stryker from God Loves Man Kills, remember him? Kidnaps Kitty in the God Loves Man Kills 2 arc of Chris Claremont's Extreme X-Men. Honestly, don't worry about it. She teams up with this team of X-Men again in one of their final adventures, helping them defeat the evil mutant Elias Bogan and free his brainwashed telepath, actually Rachel Summers, who Kitty's overjoyed to see again after believing her gone forever. The two of them live together for a bit, and you can draw your own conclusions. Kitty then returns to the X-Men formally in Joss Whedon's run on Astonishing X-Men. Abandoning the Shadowcat codename, she uses her given name as a superhero, supporting Cyclops despite her friction with his new girlfriend and co-headmistress Emma Frost. It would later be revealed that Emma secretly invited Kitty to join the team herself, knowing that Kitty would keep Emma's darker impulses in check. Pyotr comes back from the dead, thanks to some aliens, don't worry about it, and he and Kitty get back together and fuck a lot. Kitty then has to face off against Emma, who betrays the team due to psychic manipulation by Cassandra Nova. The aliens who brought back Pyotr cause more trouble, and Kitty winds up, uh... Merging with a giant bullet to prevent it from destroying Earth, she phases the entire bullet through the planet, rocketing off into deep space with no means of escape. Emma offers to telepathically euthanize her, but Kitty graciously refuses, and is thought lost forever. Thus ends the Weedon run. Two years later, in 2010's Uncanny X-Men 522 by Raider Matt Fraction, Magneto proves to the X-Men that he's reformed by pushing his magnetic powers further than ever before, nearly dying in the process, in order to pull Kitty and the bullet harmlessly back to Earth. Kitty adjusts to the new post-decimation status quo for mutants, acclimating herself to Utopia, Cyclops and Emma's new project, but is once more stuck out of phase as she was after the mutant massacre. Mutant scientists invent a containment suit to keep her intact, but she's unable to speak, so she and Pyotr need Emma's help to reconnect. After becoming solid again, Kitty later breaks up with Pyotr when he decides to take on the mantle of the juggernaut to spare his sister Ilyana, who got better, don't worry about it, from that fate. When the schism event divides the X-Men, Kitty sides with Wolverine and departs for the new Jean Grey School, where Logan makes her headmistress. Kitty embraces her role as an educator under writer Jason Aaron, even after she's impregnated by a brood parasite and the X-Men have to shrink down and fight the brood in her uterus. I am not making this up. Do not worry about it. Under writer Brian Michael Bendish, she becomes Professor K, mentor to the time-traveling teen original X-Men, and leaves the Jean Grey School after the Battle of the Atom event, to join Cyclops and his revolutionary group with her new students. Around this time, she begins dating the cosmic hero Peter Quill, aka Star-Lord, leader of the Guardians of the Galaxy. After an adventure where the relic called the Black Vortex temporarily grants her cosmic power, Kitty is stunned by a proposal of marriage from Star-Lord, which she accepts. Quill's then chosen to become the new king of his ancestral home planet, Spartax, and retires from superheroics. Kitty lives with him for a time before growing resentful due to his new obligations. She takes on the Starlord identity herself and begins operating with the Guardians of the Galaxy for a while. Honestly, you don't have to worry about it. She and Quill break off their engagement eventually, and she returns to Earth. Once again living in Chicago, Kitty tries to lead a normal life, but is approached by Aurora, who wants her to lead a new team of X-Men. In the book X-Men Gold by writer Mark Guggenheim, Kitty and Piotr get back together, again, and she moves the Jean Grey School to a new location in Manhattan's Central Park. Kitty proposes marriage to Piotr, but later leaves him at the altar after a conversation with Ilyana convinces her that she and Piotr have too much baggage and will never actually be happy together. In the 2019 soft reboot Dawn of X by Jonathan Hickman, Kitty and Emma are the stars of the new book Marauders by writer Jerry Duggan. Though she tries to join her friends in the New Mutant Nation on the living island Krakoa, Kitty finds herself uniquely unable to enter the Krakoan gate portals for some unknown reason. Instead, she takes up Emma's offer to become Red Queen of the new Hellfire Trading Company, a mercantile arm of Krakoa that supervises trade routes, frees refugees from countries that refuse to allow mutant emigration to Krakoa, and operates the black market trade in Krakoan pharmaceuticals. Now calling herself Captain Kate Pride, she leads a new team of privateers on the high seas, reclaiming the name Marauders from the evil group that once nearly killed her in the mutant massacre. Her position as Red Queen also grants her a seat on the Quiet Council, the governing body of Krakoa. When Kate's betrayed and murdered by Black King Sebastian Shaw, the five find themselves unable to resurrect her with the standard protocols. After mourning for some time, Emma eventually figures out how Kate's power is conflicting with the resurrection process and manages to bring her back. Teaming up, the two queens cripple Shaw and blackmail him into becoming their puppet. Now Captain Kate sets her eyes on the lawless island nation of Madripoor, where a group of anti-mutant bigots called Hominis Verendi have seized power. The marauders will do something about that, if Kate has anything to say about it. X-Men X-Men and we're back that was a long one hope you survived the experience I am here again with Dr. Stephanie Burt from Harvard University so what I like to do typically when we come back from the character file is what are the stories that most make you love this character that we haven't already talked about?
1: So this is a character who was very well represented in the 80s, Mm -hmm. has been well represented very recently, and was fitfully well treated from the late 90s and the return of Claremont through now. Uncanny X-Men 139, it's the first issue where Kate is being herself, where she's trying to be at once a kid with a pure group. And a physical body. And an effective superhero who can stand alongside adults. And that's going to be her arc for all of the time that she's a teen. Everybody I know who thinks about this character loves Demon, the um, homage to the Alien movies, the story of how Kate saves the mansion by turning on Chris Claremont's favorite prop, an airplane.
0: Loves an airplane. He
1: loves so many airplanes.
0: Loves a pilot. Charter pilots. Betsy was a charter pilot. Maddie Pryor was a charter pilot. Loves a lady pilot. Loves a lady with a boat, but planes are even better.
1: This is true. And now Kate is a lady with her own boat.
0: Correct. It's really very Claremont. spirit. I would actually love for Kate and the Marauder to encounter Lee Forrester out on the high seas. I feel like that would be a very Claremont moment. I
1: believe that the last time we saw her, she was stuck in...
0: Lee Forrester's in another dimension being a shot of the She-Devil ripoff, but I think she's more interesting on a boat. So I would love to see her on a boat
1: again. 100%. That's not, frankly, not a very good story. The the shot of the She-Devil ripoff story. It's a white savior story. It's bad. And they should bring her back. In any case. In any case. So I do like Demon, but it's not my favorite moment. My favorite part of it is the way that it deals with being Jewish in a Christian-centered social group in a Christian centered country
0: because she's alone on Christmas. And that's sort of the setting,
1: right? And the adults around her just kind of figure, well, she's Jewish. She won't care. Right. (laughs) She, she, she doesn't so much care about the Christmas part, but she doesn't want to be left alone. She hates being alone. Mm -hmm. Quite a lot of her peers either have had to spend a great deal of time alone or surrounded by enemies or don't mind going off on solo quests in the woods sometimes scott wants to be alone sometimes logan wants to be alone kate never wants to be alone
0: right even the new mutants tend to be people who either went through a period of isolation like danny moonstar or who crave it like sam because they never had it or rain in her horrible church like they want to be able to sit by themselves and not necessarily socialize at all times they
1: want some alone time to commune with nature or to process yep. trauma or both and Kate would rather hang with her friends and help them process their trauma.
0: At all times, which I relate to. I'm very much like a, a mom friend.
1: A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I am I'm there for that. New Mutants, volume one fifteen to seventeen, where Kate goes to the Massachusetts Academy to save Doug from Emma and gets captured yeah. by Emma. And (laughs) everybody else goes there and they all meet the Hellions and they all make more friends, but they all get captured. And of course, Illyana has to save everybody. And it's a great bonding moment for them. There's so many good bonding moments. The Brood Saga is a really lovely place to establish Kate's versatility. It has one of the best kind of Chekhov's gun going off moments in all of X comics and all of comics because we get the famous ridiculous moment where she keeps synthesizing inappropriate or unattractive or just balls-out ridiculous costumes for herself. Terrible costumes, Terrible, terrible terrible costumes. Sometimes wonderful, terrible costumes, like the the one with the roller skates with all the colors. The one with the roller skates is iconic, yeah. yeah. Uh, And the one where she tries being Captain America, which I I don't mind never seeing that again. That's one of her worst... (laughs) fashion choices i like
0: actually i really like the ariel costume the green one with sort of the circles over the eyes it doesn't last very long but i think it's cute
1: so if that costume is is iconic because it's the one she's got in in god loves man kills the right. original graphic novel i don't like it because i don't think green is her color
0: it's not if it were blue though it would be a great kate costume if it were i were blue
1: it would be fine it would be like her fifth best blue costume
0: Well, let's just agree. The best Kate costume, at least I think, is the blue Excalibur costume. Oh, of course. Oh, of course. The Shadow Cat costume. Of course. That costume is timeless incredible i mean it's a little 80s so i don't know if it's timeless but you could make it look great right now she should be wearing it every day in my opinion i love the captain kate look now but the fact that she was walking around essentially in a training uniform for like 20 years was unbearable to me when she has that beautiful blue costume
1: so there are in-universe explanations for that uh there's a really wonderful story i think it's wolverine first class number 12 it's I think the last one that Fred Van Lente wrote, and Fred Van Lente's take on Teen Kitty written way after the fact. This was during the the Yeah, this is a retcon. story. Yeah, I, I don't recommend that when Peter David starts writing her, that's a big no no. But when Fred Van Lente is writing the series, there's there's some great stuff. This is an issue where Scott shows up shortly after Uncanny One Hundred and Fifty, and Scott and Logan have a conversation about how to train Kitty and who she wants to be. Scott talks about how his whole life has been defined by trying to be the best X-Man that he could be and trying to be Charles Xavier's perfect student. And Logan talks about how he's teaching Kitty what she needs to survive. And it's quite important to be able to, to fight bad guys and save people. And not get killed by anti-mutant bigots and supervillains, but that has never been the only thing that Logan's about. The other reason that that she keeps going back to training uniform when she's a US-based superhero and when she's with the X-Men, I think, is because people keep making fun of her fashion choices. In the Uncanny 200s, in, in the moment sort of not long after the Trial of Magneto, she does try out other costumes. She's got something that's got this kind of black blindfold for a while. And this kind of almost military style code It's almost like she's halfway to a rogue uniform, but not all the way there. And it feels now like a rough draft for the Alan Davis costume, which is the best one. Yeah. But she does try. And there is a history of other people mocking her for her fashion choices, such that even when she's in space with Star-Lord, both of the people who write her when she's in space, one who I think gets her and one who absolutely doesn't, put in scenes where her boyfriend colludes with her and mocking her bad fashion sense. Yeah. So she's just, she's insecure about her design abilities. It's
0: not that I don't think you can justify it in character. It's that it speaks to a larger problem I have with the characterization of Kitty Pride over 40 years, which is that more than almost any other character, there is a tendency with her to regress her to the mean in terms of characterization to reset her and to not allow her to progress as a character beyond, perhaps, Fall of the Mutants. Once she comes back to the X-Men, essentially, if you want to ignore all of Excalibur, you can, because the X-Men book is not interested in anything that happened to her in Excalibur and puts her back in the X-Men uniform. You know what I mean? That's right.
1: And she's not handled well in the 90s. There are individual moments, the moment when she has to grieve the death of child Liana, that is not a very well-drawn story. That Joe Bennett's a screaming inappropriate artist for that, but it's a very moving story. It's one of the things that, I think it's a Lobdell story that he got right. But in general, 90s Kitty keeps getting regressed, and people who write Kitty well, and people who write Kate well, right up to the present moment, bring that out-of-universe flaw in the history of x comics back into her character
0: right no you have to make it make sense and
1: it 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 absolutely does she is someone whose identity was as the kid and the cute kid and the gifted kid isn't it cute everyone's got a crush on you isn't it cute that you have all these skills and you're only 14 for so long that she is out there saying, I'm 24, and the adults have gotten so used to saying, isn't it super cute that this 14-year-old can save the world and reprogram computers and walk through solid objects? Aww. And she doesn't want that anymore, and she hasn't wanted that for years, but she isn't quite sure how else to be around them, partly because they can't stop, and partly because we all get into these patterns when we hang out with people who we've known for that long, and partly because she's been rewarded for conforming to their expectations. She, again, unlike so many other major ex-characters, hasn't been massively traumatized by the adults in her life. She wants a peer group, which she doesn't often get, but she also wants, and she's used to getting adult approval. So her brain, I think, and maybe I'm getting a little bit personal here, but that's one of the things this podcast is about. Absolutely. Her brain isn't wired to say, screw you, I'm going to openly defy you and show you to your face that you're wrong. What her brain is, is wired to do when she can not meet those expectations is to walk away and go do something that's not open to Kurt or Rachel or most of the people she's close to. It's to go do something else in another place with other people. And she keeps trying to do that and learning more about herself and making new friends. And then she gets dragged back to the X-Men because they need her. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why her current incarnation as Captain Kate is so good. She gets to be ambassadorial. She also gets to be transgressive. She gets to be sort of a second-in-command figure again because... The person who's really in charge of the Hellfire Trading Company is Emma. Is Emma. But Kate gets to make tactical decisions. Kate gets to have the mix of a peer group and a social life as a recognized leader that she's always wanted and that she's been trained for without having to reject the adults and without having to be under their constant supervision.
0: The parallelism that I find most appealing is the second in command thing that you note because I'm very much a proponent of... A political framework, somewhat of my own positing, I guess, that positions Emma as the third prong in the Charles and Eric political spectrum. Emma has sort of a different perspective that is a unique perspective, but that is just as much a political perspective that carries through all the stories. And I love the idea of Kate's ultimate form, essentially, being the Cyclops to Emma's Charles in the sense of... I am the person who gets you, who gets what you're trying to do. We don't always agree, but I believe in your vision, and I'm going to be the one who executes it in the field. And because of my instincts, which you trust, you know that I will make the right decisions in the field to further your goals. I think that that is a really smart new stage for that relationship that has been so interesting since their first appearance together.
1: That is absolutely correct. It's one of the few parts of Kate's modern character that I I don't think you can say that the 80s writing team really anticipated.
0: Oh, no, because Claremont certainly didn't anticipate Emma ever being a good guy at all.
1: That's right, but the groundwork was there. And besides questions about how to be femme in a world that does not necessarily reward femininity, Emma and Kate, share a sense that protection and thriving, not just safety, but the ability to thrive from mutants is going to come from taking power and holding power in the human world. Mm -hmm. A vision that makes its leaders into people with diplomatic powers, people who can pass tactically, people who can become temporarily acceptable to the larger society, It is a vision that is not assimilationist, but that is never separatist. It's a vision that Emma and and Kater are are, are beautifully positioned to implement. And it's a vision that, that speaks to the mutant metaphor really beautifully. It speaks to disability politics. It speaks to trans and queer politics. And of course, it speaks to Jewish identity.
0: Yes. I would argue, I think Emma's position is somewhat separatist, but only ideologically. It's not physically separatist, you know what I mean? Like, she's always in the world, but it is about protecting us. That's right. Emma's always about shoring up the future for mutant children, but she does it by manipulating and interacting with the majority populace
1: that is exactly right and she's far more pessimistic than chuck correct about the possibility of a kind of permanent peace or permanent acceptance
0: right she thinks the system will never ever be good to us so we need to use the system as much as we can to protect ourselves
1: that is precisely right
0: as opposed to charles saying let's make the system work for everyone and eric saying let's destroy the system that those are sort of the three positions that is
1: exactly right
0: I think that the point about passing is always really important to her narrative yes what it makes me think of in particular is one of my favorite stories which is the story early in excalibur when the team fights their alternate selves from the nazi earth yes it's a very provocative story I think that if the writer had not been Jewish, I it's a Claremont story, that it would be a little dicey. Yes. I mean, it was still dicey and provocative at the time and certainly is provocative now. I don't know that he would have been allowed to do something like this now. But the reveal that is most upsetting about that story is that their version of Kitty is an emaciated, bald slave with a Star of David tattooed on her forehead who is essentially a broken monster. That's right. That they have pressed into service. It's actually not unlike Rachel's role as a hound in the Days of Future Past. The idea that we've taken your power and exploited it to such a point that you've been dehumanized and enslaved, but it has the added layer of... And we did it because you're a Jew. That's right. That's right. And the only reason you're not dead is because you had a power that we found useful, which is also an experience that happened to Jews in the Holocaust, right. right? Like, if you were in the camps and you were someone who had a skill that they wanted to use, then they would keep you alive and force you to collaborate in certain ways. I mean, Claremont is very preoccupied with the Holocaust throughout. Yeah, yeah all of his initial 16 year run but it is one of the more overt direct comparisons and it's a reflection of the holocaust allegories in days of future past which of course kate being the character who goes back in time to avert the mutant holocaust as the jewish character is very specific which is part of why the movie doesn't work for me I think it's a perfectly good movie, but it's not a good Days of Future Past movie. <laughs> That's right. I've,
1: I've, I wrote about it. It doesn't. Yeah, it, it's, it's it doesn't not, work. It doesn't work. The alternate Kate who shows up on the train from the from
0: Hauptmann England's
1: <laughs> Earth, yeah, right. with with Hauptmann England and the rest of Nazi Excalibur. It's it's harsher in a way than Claremont's other yeah Nazi references.
0: It's a lot more visceral.
1: Not just because it's the real Nazis, because it shows up in the context of a book that is normally so...
0: Lighthearted, yeah.
1: It is a, a comedic book. It has serious emotional beats and character development, but it's not the kind of book where you expect massive reflections on historical atrocities. That is also... True to a lot about Jewish American and I think to some extent probably British Jewish identity, if you're in an you know urban environment at least and you're in the kind of environments that Kitty up to that point has been in, you're used to a lot of things, but you're not used to vivid firsthand encounters with physically harmful anti-Semitism right in a way that Jews, historically, we have been, and in other parts of the U.S. and other parts of the world, of course, it's happening. It's bringing Kate face-to-face with something that she's not often face-to-face with in the present. Claremont knew exactly what he was doing. We learn, I I went back and looked at the stuff around Trial of Magneto. Yeah. We even learned that that Pride is not uh, historically... Kate's family name that was Prideman until it was changed. Yeah. uh, uh, Probably at Ellis Island. Well,
0: and what's interesting also is like part of the passing element that she has is that she doesn't... Her name is not Rachel Goldstein. Right. You know, like... My family name was Goldstein, and it got anglicized to Goldsmith, which is still pretty Jewish if you're in New York. But if we were in the Midwest, it's like a trade name. You wouldn't necessarily. Right.
1: Goldsmith's College of the University of London is not a Jewish institution. Oliver
0: Goldsmith was not a Jew. Right. Although it is, I've heard, the most common Jewish surname in the UK because so many Goldsteins, Goldschmidts, Goldbergs, and so on anglicized to Goldsmith.
1: Uh huh. I'm not surprised.
0: Yeah, but the point is that's something that a lot of people did for their own protection or to assimilate or whatever. And Catherine Pride is a perfectly goyish name. Like, there's nothing overtly Jewish about it. And her parents' names are Carmen and Teresa, which are also very goyish they names. They sound
1: Catholic. Her, her, they entire, sound Catholic. It, it's, I, as, as you said earlier, it's Irish passing.
0: Yeah, it's all very Irish. I mean, Teresa Pride could be my Irish family. Like, I could have a Teresa Pride who's a relative of mine. Yeah. So, it's an interesting beat that whenever she's faced with the reality of her Jewishness, it's never something she's not aware of. But whenever she feels the need to invoke it, it's because, I mean, Bendis really nails it. That's right. In his response to the Remender speech, Now, I don't agree with one part of it, which is she says, I don't look Jewish, and I don't agree with that. I think she doesn't look Jewish by the time of the Bendis run, because starting in the aughts, they straightened her hair and lightened it and all of that stuff. But she used to look Jewish in the 80s, in my opinion, with those curls and with the way she was drawn.
1: When Kate is is drawn the way I I feel like she wants to be drawn, uh, which is a (laughs) hell of a projection, she has wavy hair. But she doesn't have like she can't she doesn't have like a, a Jufro.
0: My grandfather, for example, was very dark, and she's not. Right. You know, there's things like that. Right. So I get I get the point. I just it's something about that panel of her with the stick straight, chemically straightened ponytail, where I'm just like, yeah, you don't look Jewish right now because you've got a metric ton of relaxer in your hair. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I digress. I, no,
1: I, I, I think about her the way that her hair gets straighter. And I I don't like it when her hair is long and and super straight. I hate Uh, it. But the the ponytail stuff uh, has to do with not having it get in your way when you're fighting. I'm I'm okay with the ponytail.
0: If it was a ponytail that had the right hair texture, it wouldn't bother me. It's that suddenly she has the hair of a Scandinavian model. Like, it's just not, it's not right.
1: Now we're going to get into how much I struggle with my own hair, which is too thin and (laughs) doesn't stay in ponytails. And, like, I have, my hair is is straighter than Kitty is supposed to be, but I think we have the same coloration and people used to think I was Irish constantly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, as someone who's both, yeah, anyway, it's just a throwaway, but I was just sort of like, it's just specifically because I feel like they de-ethnicized her over time visually. That line kind of stuck in my craw a little bit, because that's I was fair. like, that's that's an artistic that's choice, fair. that's not and, necessarily true. And Bendis, true.
1: Even, a, even a writer as, as powerful as Bendis doesn't get full control over the colorists.
0: Right, or over the the design of the character, because by that point her design was pretty solidified, right, for a long time. It was that training uniform with the ponytail ever since Whedon. That's right. But the speech, which is brilliant, is about how, and this is part of why I have felt the need to proclaim my Jewishness and to make it a really important part of myself is because, well, it's also what we said earlier about trans identity and about being in the closet as a trans person and not necessarily having a queer community around you. Yeah. If you are passing as something else, if you're passing as the majority and you don't volunteer, no one's going to find you. That's right.
1: It's isolating.
0: It's isolating. And it is, feels bad. I mean, you said that you felt the need to stand up and be a visible person. And that's what I think Kitty feels and what that speech is about. Yes.
1: And to be a tangible person, which which we'll get to.
0: Which is a struggle she always has, right, with, with literal tangibility.
1: That speech is one of a couple moments when Bendis gets her Jewish identity right. It is a matter of solidarity with the oppressed when you're not being directly oppressed. And it's a matter of Community, mm-hmm. and it's a matter of chosen community that's also inherited community. And the speech, which if our listeners don't have encyclopedic knowledge of issue and volume number, this is all new X Men number thirteen, mm-hmm. uh, the one written by Bendis. It is a beautiful speech that she gives in a uh, dark room, like red light on an airplane.
0: Yeah, it's really beautiful page. While
1: they're going, I believe to rescue Laura Kinney. It's a great story. I, I really love most of most of the Bendis All-New. There, there's another moment where if you, the reader, and and you, the sort of Goyish other superheroes around her, have forgotten that she's Jewish, she will remind you. When she is trying to be in space with Peter Quell... Yeah. They visit a prison planet, and... The other guardians want to do whatever they've been assigned to do and get out. And Kate looks around and sees how it works and just says, this is a concentration camp. We have to burn it to the Mm -hmm. ground and save everyone. Yeah. Her realization that this looks very familiar and I'm not going to let this happen ever again if I can use my powers and my friends to prevent it is what drives that plot. Mm -hmm. And she says this is a concentration camp. Bendis also has her talk about her bat mitzvah. Like there's... He, he knows what he's doing with that part of her, of her identity.
0: Yeah, and I think that the big thing about Kitty is that she always brings up her Judaism in a very specific way, which is that she brings it up to make a point. And this is something Claremont was invested in, bringing that metaphor home. And the most controversial times that this has happened, Kitty goes a little too far with it. And drops some racial slurs on the page and whatnot to demonstrate the equivalency that she's trying to make with the mutant condition. It works better when she makes it very personal. I actually think that at Larry Bodine's funeral, when she starts with anti-Semitic slurs, it's more palatable than the ones where she's just sort of saying the N word to Phil or to oh, Stevie Hunter. Of, or, of course, she you shouldn't.
1: Know. She shouldn't be using. She shouldn't the have done because right. she's a white girl.
0: Claremont has said. If he could go back, he would change that's that. Right. It's not, you know. That's right. And I believe in the newest printing of God Loves, Man Kills, they... Oh, good. It's still there, but they took it out. Like, you don't re- you can't read it. Yeah, that's, that's good. This is why she and Storm, as the new focus of the book under Claremont, made the metaphor work so much better. Because Storm can talk about racial oppression, and Kitty can talk about the Holocaust, and it makes the metaphor a lot stronger than when it was a bunch of waspy white kids in Westchester being secretly Jewish, meaning mutant, right? Which was the initial 60s sort of premise.
1: That's right. That's right. And and again, I, I take this partly from Jay Edredin, who's been super thoughtful about it. It also becomes a disability metaphor. Yes,
0: and we talked about that in the Cyclops episode yes. that Jay did yeah. with me. And that was an interesting lens for me because that's not something I'd really thought about. My favorite one of those kitty moments sort of the precursor to that speech Bendis does, is in Uncanny 210 Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the mutant massacre. She and Pyotr and Ilyana go to rescue Kurt, whose teleportation ability isn't working, from a lynch mob. Yeah. That speech, I read that issue when I was, I want to say, 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. I think it was what awakened in me the desire to... Connect with my Jewish heritage because it. I- I'm just gonna read it actually. <laughs> Pyotr has interrupted the mob. Human law is for human beings. Now back off, fella, or you'll get the same. And Kitty says, Peter must be crazy for pulling a stunt like this, and I must be crazier for going along. Hey, Mester, who defines what's human? And the guy says, It's obvious, girl. Just open your eyes. And she says, That's simple, huh? Well, a whole chunk of my family was murdered in gas chambers because the Nazis said it was just as obvious that Jews weren't human. And not so long ago in this country, people felt the same about blacks. Some still do. Is that right? And the guy says, he scared my kids. And she says, you scare me. Does that give me the right to beat your brains out? And she lifts a fist and she says, You want to prove how big and tough and brave you are? Beat up on me. Come on, what are you waiting for? You're bigger than me and I'm just a girl. Hey, maybe I'm a mutie too. Ever think of that? Maybe we all are. Maybe the big guy can turn into steel and his kid sister's a demon sorceress and I can walk through walls. Maybe when you're done, you can hang our heads on your wall as trophies. Or better yet, take our scalps like they did in the Wild West. That'll really be something to be proud of. And a woman says, you shouldn't talk so to your elders, young lady. And she says, I don't to those I respect. And the mob disperses. Now, my father has always said he found when he was reading this in his 20s, the speeches Kitty gives that impress adults to be a little bit of an eye roll. But as a young person reading this, I was inflamed. It was... It has never left me. It is a scene I think about all the time. There was a Twitter prompt like a year ago. What are the lines that never leave you from comics? And the two that I cited immediately, because they came to me in seconds, were Emma in Morrison saying, the whole world is watching us now. We must be nothing less than fabulous. And Kitty saying, you scare me. Does that give me the right to beat your brains out? Yes. It is... To me, the most important thing about this character on some level is her ability to do that and to be a voice specifically of the Jewish spirit of superhero comics that is almost never allowed to be on the page. That's right. And to make it textual. Because if you go to the Marvel wiki or whatever, and you click Jewish characters, I got news for you. There aren't that many. And a bunch of them that are listed are still Pietro and Wanda and their relatives who aren't Jewish anymore, except for Billy, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. We don't, that's a whole other can of worms. But the point is, she does it. And this was before they let them say that the thing was Jewish on the page.
1: Oh, wow.
0: This is before they let them say Magneto is Jewish on the page. Magneto and The Thing are not Jewish on the page until the 21st century. We,
1: Magneto, we established that Magneto was in a, a concentration camp in X-Men 150. We established
0: that he was in Auschwitz. And he says things like, what happened to the Jews when I was young? But he doesn't say, what happened to us, the Jews, when I was young? Wow. It's implied, but it's never said. It's not actually said on page until 2008 in Greg Pak's Magneto Testament.
1: Which is a pretty amazing miniseries.
0: Yeah, but because of an aversion to... You know, the excuse that was always used is, oh, we don't talk about religion in superhero comics, except that we do all the time. Of course we do. Superman goes to church, Daredevil goes to church, people go to church all the time. It's default, though, so no one comments on it.
1: The generation that created silver age comics that generation throughout america not just in the comics industry the generation where you sort of named your kids irving and stanley was taught do not call attention to your judaism except like when you're in shoal except when you're at home or
0: when you're in xavier's you can use your mutant powers i mean that is the that is the 60s x-men
1: right, right. do not call attention to your do not call attention to your judaism in the workplace do not call attention among blame to the fact that you are jewish because not only will you be punished for it we will be punished for it
0: it will be a shonda like it will be bad for all of us
1: right it was a generation that had passing as self-preservation down to a kind of instinct and when i i look at manifestations in american popular culture outside of superhero comics of Jewish identity and sort of scratch my head. Why did that happen the way it did and and when it did? Uh, why is my father obsessed with Fiddler on the Roof? Obsessed right. with Fiddler on the Roof to the point where I just can't. I just can't with it. Uh, and the reason is that I think.
0: <laughs> well, that's very Fiddler on the Roof, right? It is very Fiddler on the Roof. For the daughter not to be able to take it Well, anymore.
1: exactly, exactly. Uh, but it, it makes sense when you think about Fiddler on the Roof as the eruption of on-page Jewishness into a Broadway that had been very yeah. thoroughly Jewish, but you weren't allowed to say it.
0: But you weren't allowed to talk about it, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, and that's at the very end, uh, 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 end of the Silver Age, if you're going by comic timeline, that's like 68 or 69.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a reason we're talking about Stanley and Jack Kirby and not about Stanley Lieber and Jacob Kurtzberg.
1: Right, right.
0: It's very much, it's the Kitty Pride of it all. Right,
1: and although I don't think that the real-life human from whom John Byrne took her name.
0: The classmate, yeah, in Canada. Yeah, a
1: classmate at, 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 in, in Calgary in art school was, was Jewish. Uh, I don't know. Apparently she goes by KT Pride now as a fairly successful visual artist mm-hmm. because she does not want to be asked about the mutant. Yeah, She doesn't go name. by
0: Kitty anymore. Right? Nor, does, <laughs> nor does the rapper,
1: although I think that's a copyright issue.
0: That was a copyright issue. Yes, she she definitely did name herself after the well, character. Oh, one hundred percent.
1: As did the rapper Jean Grey.
0: Yes, who is
1: amazing. Who is who is amazing. Claremont and Byrne are able to do on-page Jewishness at almost the first moment when you could get away with it.
0: Yeah, no. It, I mean, Kitty is the first one. Like there are characters before her, but in terms of this is a superhero who matters. Yeah. On the biggest book in the industry, like this is it. That's right. She's the standard bearer and. More importantly, she's not a character where it is just there and it's a detail. It's part of who she is. It is so central and she talks about it all the time. That's right.
1: That's right. And she's also good at making speeches to adults and good at making she's speeches good at it. to non-Jews about it. One yeah. of her non-mutant abilities is making speeches.
0: Yeah, like elocution, speech yeah. Like She's good at it. That's why it makes sense that Claremont pushes her into politics, even if it gets a little silly in places. But the idea makes sense because she has that ability. And I agree with you that the Marauders and the Quiet Council are a good place for her because it allows her to be ambassadorial, as you said, which is something that she's always been very good at.
1: That's right. I want to close a parenthesis by going back to the Brood Saga and noting, just because I never get over it, how her costume silliness turns into a way of saving everybody because remember she uses the costume generator to impersonate the phoenix for a hot second? Yes. And saves everybody that way. I
0: used that image from the cover in the Jean Grey cover art because it's one of the best images of the Dark Phoenix costume that's full body. And I was like, hopefully no one will notice. And someone was like, that's Kitty. And I was like, shut up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's hard to find a good full body shot from the Dark Phoenix saga that isn't really stylized with her hair turning into stars or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is lovely. And it is an early instance of something that Kate, not as someone thinking about being Jewish, but as someone thinking about being bi and thinking about being femme and thinking about being a representative of queer communities in which she will not claim full membership until much, much later on page Something that's that's important to the way her character develops, which is her relationship, not just to being a woman, but to femininity.
0: Well, I think that that ties really nicely into the reaction she has to Storm's makeover. Right. Because Storm goes to Japan, meets Yukio, has a lesbian relationship and becomes much more butch in her presentation. And Kitty freaks out. Yeah. She can't deal with
1: it. And they have the best conversation about it. Yes.
0: This film where it's like, I'm not your mother. I'm your friend, but.
1: It's great. And it's, it's partly a kid reacting to someone who needed to, who she saw as a source of constancy. Right. You, you don't want your authority figures. To change. To change. You want them to always be there for you. And you also want them to model what you could grow up to be. And Kate can grow up to be a lot of things, but she's not going to grow up to be punk rock. She's not going to grow up to be the kind of screw-you-I-don't-care-what-anybody-thinks confrontational figure that Storm is experimenting with becoming. When Kate says, I don't care what anybody thinks, the end of the sentence is always, so I'm going to do the right thing no matter what, and she's actually setting a good example, and she does care what people think.
0: Yeah, and I think that with Storm... Part of her hero worship of Storm when they meet is that Storm is the most beautiful woman she's ever seen and is this abundant femininity, has this long, flowing, beautiful hair, wears these very elegant outfits, or her costume is beautiful and exposes a lot of her feminine form. It's something that Kitty aspires to. And so for Storm to reject it and to masculinize her presentation freaks kitty out because i think it makes her face the idea that that maybe that's not real or maybe like it it, it threatens the whole gender schema that she sort of inserted herself into in her head where she's like i will grow up to be a beautiful woman just like storm and then storm becomes a more androgynous character and kitty doesn't really know how to how to deal with it and i also think there's a sexual element yeah Retrospectively, not that she's attracted to Storm, but it is notable that the girls Kitty is attracted to are not especially feminine, right? That's right. Ileana has long hair and will wear skimpy clothes or whatever. But for the most part, her presentation is pretty, let's say, aggressive, in your face, like you were saying. It's not traditionally feminine. And then Rachel's presentation, more importantly, is punk rock is androgynous, is intentionally a punk style, which is part of why I think Rachel has struggled as a character in the last couple decades, because without the mullet and those fashions, she's not as recognizable as Rachel. That's right. Certainly in the Rachel Gray period, which, as I've said, I don't care for, she just comes across as like, here's another redhead we have. It doesn't feel like Rachel in the same way, because when you give Rachel this sort of girly... Gender presentation, it doesn't, it doesn't track to me as the same character. Almost, I almost, I guess, have a reverse kitty reaction to that makeover.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and the history of of Rachel is a history that says fairly damning things about professional comics artists.
0: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Enough said. When you go back and
1: reread <laughs> the '80s stuff, the great artists who worked with Claremont and Simonson and Desanti. Other than burn and after burn, yeah, are people who are very comfortable drawing butch women, yeah, and drawing teens and drawing various body types. Although, unfortunately, not sort of all of them.
0: No one particularly heavy, unless they're evil. But otherwise, (laughs) yeah, and that's that's actually Claremont. That's that's mostly yeah. No, that's that's a writing. That's That's a writing thing. But
1: but the the um the way that we think about. Kate growing up to be the bisexual pirate queen who she has at last been able to become does have to do with subtextual or off-page negotiations with maybe I'm into girls and with on-page negotiations with not womanhood but femininity. And I want to invoke Julia Serrano here, S-E-R-A-N-O.
0: I'm familiar, but if you're not, listener, look up Julia Serrano.
1: Wonderful and accessible writer, about trans existence and about trans misogyny and about the cultural fear of and, and tendency to, to downplay or disempower not women but the feminine. Kate is always negotiating with that. Kate sees Punk Storm and flips the heck out one of the things in retrospect that she's thinking. And I believe that happens right after Ilyana gets aged up. But it, it happens, I think, right before, because Liana gets aged up in Uncanny 160. Yes. But it takes a little while to explore that.
0: Yeah, we don't know what happened for a while, right. really, like in right. the depths of what and happened. it takes
1: a little bit longer for the X team to figure out that Kate shouldn't be dating Piotr, as hot as he is. Kate should really be subtextually and consistently dating Liana.
0: I mean, well, that's how I always felt.
1: (laughs) Of course, of course. Another recurrent aspect of who Kitty is, there's radical self-doubt. There are persistent notes, which the Whedon run plays on and frankly abuses, Mm -hmm. where Kitty has thoughts about self-harm, thoughts about maybe I am too much of a burden on my loved ones. Maybe I don't want to be a person anymore. Maybe, and the place this is handled comprehensively and beautifully, although it's not the only place, is the Fantastic Four vs. X-Men 1987 uh, four-issue series. Yeah, the mini. Another one of my favorite Kitty stories where she has been very seriously injured in the mutant massacre, and she's on Mirror Island to recuperate, and she's going to end up making a full recovery and joining Excalibur.
0: But we don't know that yet.
1: (laughs) Right. Right up to the beginning of Excalibur, where that's recapped in uh, The Sword is Drawn. And throughout Fantastic Four vs. X-Men, where various other characters are trying to figure out how to save her, she's thinking about letting herself discorporate.
0: This is when she's been injured by Harpoon and she can't turn solid again. And she is slowly beginning to discorporate unless they can find a way to resolidify her. Right. She's getting
1: less and less solid. It's scary. It's apt because it speaks to readers of any age, and especially, I think, readers whose relation to having a body is complicated. Mm. And this is one of the great ways, and I know read reader is trans, but her power set is such a good metaphor for trans identity, especially if you've been rewarded for other stuff. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only listener to X-Men podcast who had years of her life where she felt like she wasn't allowed to have a body. You're great. We love you. Please keep getting A's. Uh, we will give you a, a great job and job security. Please keep writing things. Please keep doing lots of math for us. Please keep fixing our stuff. We love you for your mind and your skills and your powers, but you're not allowed to have a body. No one will really want to hold your hand. No one will really want to snuggle with you. No one will love you for your body. You aren't exactly a real human being. You're just this gifted something else. What would you like for lunch? Right. (laughs) That can be very heady when it's new and it's certainly preferable to being told you're worthless or made into a hound or the things or held captive, the things that happened to most of Kitty's friends. But it's scary and eventually it can just get to be too much. That strand of her character that says even the people who seem like they're in a very good place can have really deep sadness and really deep doubts about our self-worth that are sometimes related to disability or related to trans and queer identities and related to the way that the world says to you, you can be yourself on condition that you do things for us. If not, maybe you're not worth keeping around and the way that the world says we will not allow you to have a body. That is where Kitty's, deepest sadnesses come from when she's not being sad for her friends and that's what fantastic four versus x-men is about and it is franklin
0: franklin richards yeah
1: who at the time is like four or five supposedly who sort of shows up and reminds kitty that there is always the possibility of something new and something better and that sort of the future for her is unlimited and the present is at least full of people who care about her and save her from discorporating until a deal can be made with Victor Von Doom.
0: I actually really did enjoy Chip Zdarsky's sequel to that that happened in the Krakoa era. Now, of course, it's all kind of been ruined by the story about Franklin.
1: Oh, geez. Yeah, by Dan Slott.
0: Which we don't have to get into. No. But the way that it came back around with Franklin now having problems with his powers and Kate being the one to reach him and to bring him to a place where he could start to understand what was going on with him I thought that that was really good
1: I had a chance actually to write about that jointly with Andrea Ayers for Comics XF. oh nice and it was really fun to work with Andrea I liked the way that series began and I liked the character work that Chip Starsky did with Kate and Franklin, I was disappointed by where it went.
0: Sure. It's the character stuff that I really liked.
1: Yeah, it's certainly it it's uh, I, I was happy to see that relationship revisited.
0: Yeah, I mean I don't know if it ever will be again now, but it was nice for that moment that we that we saw it. How
1: someone will just Someday. <laughs> the rule that that I think X Twitter had, and I'm sure you saw some of that when the Fantastic Four story came out, declaring Franklin no longer a mutant, was that if it's not edited by the X Office, it's not an ex-book.
0: No, frankly, if it's not edited by the X office, to me it's only sub level canon. Yeah. Well. That's how I can process the mutants of one million BC, which let's not even get uh, me started on that. Because yeah, that really that's a that's a problem for me.
1: I'm okay with the mutants of sixteen oh three. I'm okay with the Neil Gaiman. Elizabethan stuff.
0: I'm okay with any mutants that happen post Celine, but you can't have mutants happening 800,000 years before Celine. That doesn't work at all.
1: I agree. I agree.
0: Anyway, I think that's a good time for us to go into reader questions. We have so many of them, and they will be jumping off points for more discussion. Let's do it. I got so many questions this week. We get more and more every week on this show. It's a good show. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And this is a very, very popular character, obviously. So if I don't read your question this week, mea culpa, but there's only so much I can do in one episode. Eric John E. writes, Hi, Connor. Loving the podcast as always, and so does my partner now, because I always pass along all the best jokes and juiciest ex-gossip. My question is, what was Kate's first tattoo? I think a few times you or a guest have indicated that Hold Fast was not, in fact, Kate's first tattoo, but I haven't been able to find out what it was. Thanks again for the amazing X content, Eric John E. So this is actually from Mechanics. When Kitty was in college, Claremont has her get a tattoo on her bicep of a stylized Lockheed. Mm Mm-hmm. It is very conspicuous throughout Mechanics and in some Claremont stuff after that, and then we mostly just don't see it again. I think you're talking about the episode I did with Jerry Duggan where we talked about that a little bit because... There has been controversy online about Kate getting tattoos because in Judaism, that is not something you're supposed to do. Now, I have tattoos. Spencer Ackerman pointed out that he's essentially sleeved during his episode. I think that this speaks to something that Stephanie talked about earlier, which is that Kate is a representative of a specifically reformer conservative Jewish American perspective rather than orthodox American perspective, Mm -hmm. which is very different. I don't think Kate keeps kosher. I don't think Kate goes to shul a lot. I don't think that she is particularly observant. And most millennial Jews I know have tattoos. But I think it's important, and this is why I brought it up in the Jerry Duggan episode, I think it's important that Claremont, who is Kitty's Jewish creator, who had Kitty talk about being Jewish all the time and does in Mechanics, has Kitty also get a tattoo. It's not like Jerry did that out of nowhere, is sort of what I was trying to say. That's right. That's right.
1: I'm paging through, oh, this is great. I'm paging through Mechanics. And every time I reread Mechanics, I see more to like it. And I think I'm even getting used to the art.
0: (laughs) I don't hate the art, honestly. I don't love the covers, but I don't hate the art.
1: yeah, Yeah, I'm. I'm, there's good parts and bad parts. There's a lovely panel midway through Mechanics 1. And I think it's the first time that we see the part of Kate's arm that doesn't have arm jewelry.
0: She's wearing bangles and stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah. Arm, uh, upper arm, like snake shaped, a snake bangle. She
0: gets a nose ring and mechanics. She's like going through a. She's having a rebellious she's moment. She's having her you own know?
1: kind of new wave phase because she's never going to be punk yeah. rock anymore than I am. But she's having a new wave phase.
0: She's trying.
1: She's had a bit, and she slumped down on a table with a giant bottle of what looks like stout with Shan, who says Leong and I are fine. We have an apartment. Speaking of which, you look like you could use a home-cooked meal, and you get to mm-hmm. think what you're thinking throughout this story about Kate's need for belonging. And Kate says, some other time, I gotta work. And that's where you see the kind of greenish Lockheed yeah, um, on her arm. So yeah, I think that is her first tattoo. Thank you.
0: Yeah, that was my attempt to engage with part of a conversation around marauders that was very contentious, obviously. Jewish people are not a monolith. Lots of people are going to feel different ways about things. I I mean, I, I don't really have a problem with any of it. I don't even really have a problem with the cremation because again, I know reformed Jews have been cremated. Yeah. It's just, this depends on how observant you are. And I don't think of Kate as a very observant character. However, because there are so few Jewish characters and because she is the standard bearer it Marvel for Jewish characters, there is an expectation for some people that she should be more observant I would like to see, and I said this in one of the episodes they did with Spencer. I think it was the Magneto episode. I think it's really good that we have Dust and we have Monet. And they're both Muslim women. And Monet is not observant. And Dust is very observant. I think that it would be good to have more Jewish characters and to have a Jewish character or two who are Orthodox or who are from. Oh, absolutely. I think that would take some pressure off. Kate to be super observant when I don't think that's really that's who. That's exactly
1: is. right. That's really not who she is.
0: It's cultural and ethnic for her more than it is religious. Yeah, we see her. There's that great Yachtsite issue. Yeah, by Greg Raka, where she mourns Pyotr in a religious way. Yeah. but she does it because it's what she. She even sort of says it's like this is what we do in Judaism, but it doesn't feel like she's spiritually committed to it she's like doing it because she needs to do something ritualistic to make herself feel better jewish
1: rituals are for special occasions and I, i imagine that when she's not you know in space at the time she goes to shul on rosh hashanah and yom kippur but she doesn't go
0: exactly she's the jewish equivalent of a christmas and easter christian like she's that kind of person
1: If she lights Shabbat candles on Fridays, which she might, it is as much in order to share her ethnic traditions with whoever she happens to be living with, uh, rather than because she wants to follow the 613 commandments. Of course, she'd get a tattoo.
0: And I bet she only does it if she's living with other people. And she's like, let's do this as like a social activity. You know what I mean? Like, it's much more that for her.
1: She knows she's Jewish. She has so much physics to study. She doesn't stop to light a candle when no one's around. Exactly. There's too much physics. She knows she's Jewish. I, right. We should move on.
0: Yeah, but I do want to say that if you are a Jewish reader who is feeling conflicted about some of the stuff in Marauders that is less observant, I actually think Marauders is the most kiddies Judaism has ever been emphasized since the 80s. But it's a very specifically cultural kind of Judaism. That's right. As opposed to religious, necessarily. If you are someone who's felt weird about that or who is not sure how you feel about it, Zach Rabaroff wrote a beautiful article for comics xf about all of that yeah i will link it in the comments under this episode it made me cry honestly his thoughts about like the reason you don't cremate jews has to do with the holocaust i mean there's other reasons but the reason that it's considered particularly not something you're supposed to do now relates to the holocaust and the way that he sees that story as making Kitty the Jew that you can't burn. That's right. Is um yeah, that was a astoundingly essay. beautiful to me. Like she comes back, even if you burn her, I I I it made me cry.
1: The way that Kate's resurrection was handled in that set of issues. The fact that
0: it's high, that it's the eighteenth time.
1: And and the way that her multiple queer commitments are acknowledged and the way that her friendship with Kurt, who's the only person there who understands her Judaism, really.
0: If she calls him her rabbi, which I love.
1: That's right. And Emma, of course, understands her best of all. She doesn't break through barriers. She ignores them. And I just, I want a tattoo of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't have tattoos, but uh, if, if I were to go out and get them, that, that would be up there. Garrett Rooney
0: writes... Hi, Connor and Stephanie. Hi. For much of her screen time in the comics, Kate plays the role of the relatable youngster on the team, someone the reader can identify with, a role later filled by Jubilee and armor. What's the deal there? Why are there so many young female mutants hanging around with the X-Men and getting mentored by Wolverine? What makes this archetype so appealing to readers and writers alike? I'd be tempted to say that it's just later writers aping Claremont, but the second time it happened, it was still Claremont, so presumably it's not just that. Thanks, Garrett. I think that Kitty was a pretty revolutionary character in a lot of ways. And one of them was, it's not typical for that character, that viewpoint character to be a girl.
1: Not back then at all.
0: Not back then in 1980. Yeah. And so I think that it became an indelible part of what the X-Men is, that it had that teenage girl's viewpoint. And so much like the Claremont Dames, the Claremazons, whatever you want to call (laughs) them, much like that became an indelible part of the X-Men long after Claremont was gone, the fact that it has more prominent female characters who are powerful and actualized than pretty much any other major superhero franchise. Yeah. I think that the teenage girl vibe just feels indelibly X-Men. So when you're Grant Morrison and you're looking at how do we reintroduce the X-Men, what am I going to do that makes it feel fresh? Angel Salvador, who's the other big example yeah, I would point to, is... You know, Jubilee is an evolution of the concept in that Kitty is, as we've said, a pretty privileged girl from the suburbs, white for all intents and purposes, has the Jewish aspect that people are bigoted about, but she has white privilege. She's got all of that going on. She's from a comfortable background. Jubilee, meanwhile... Is Chinese was on the streets for a while. Is streetwise. It's a slightly more modern character, or outside of that reader identification zone with like the target white suburban child reader of Marvel comics.
1: I would sort of dissent with that, although we should save this for a really Jubilee episode, yeah, because comics readers like to envision ourselves as outsiders. Uh, many are East Asian American, and Jubilee later turns out to have run away. But to have a fairly comfortable background, it's Boom Boom, who's really a mess, who's...
0: But that's a Simonson character. Yeah, yeah. And uh, no, I I don't disagree. I'm not saying that it's not relatable to comics readers. I'm saying that in 1980, when Kitty's created, the imagined comics reader is is a white kid from the suburbs. That's
1: right. And the imagined comics reader around Claremont and the imagined comics reader in a Marvel office, the superhero comic is usually... A boy or a young man. Correct. And Claremont is famous. He's caricatured for this, right? In drawings of the Marvel Office from around that time, his tagline was, can we make this character a woman? Right. And the tradition of putting teen sidekick characters or point of view characters for younger readers into superhero comics goes back to the 40s. Yes. So if you add, we want a young, relatable point of view character. And in X comics, we have more girls and women And if you combine those, you get a teen girl.
0: Yeah. And so with Jubilee, it's him going, all right, the landscape is changing. Let's have a character who's a little more contemporary. I mean, she was literally like a mall kid, which was a thing at the time. That's right. I think that Angel Salvador under Morrison, it's stressing what Morrison is attempting to emphasize in their run, which is that not every mutant has a beautiful aesthetic power. Not every mutant is someone who comes from a comfortable place. Angel is black. She's born into poverty. She's abused. She has kind of boom, boom and skids. Both kind of have that backstory also. She draws on that, but she also has a grotesque power that she doesn't like. That's right. She doesn't make beautiful fireworks. She doesn't walk through walls. She's an insect and she thinks it's disgusting. Yeah. And so do all the people around her. Yeah. You know, she's not as major a character as kitty or jubilee were in the claremont run and the run that followed but she is still the character we check in with whenever we are checking in with the student body that's right it is a way of saying this isn't the x-men of the 80s this isn't the claremont x-men because this is the teenage girl that i'm invested in exploring right now that's not to denigrate kitty but it's to say this is a different that's story. right
1: and since morrison like every few years
0: they come up with a new one
1: <laughs> you get you both get school books that are updates of the new mutant goal of like this is a school let's get a group of teams and you also get individuals who are the youngest person in the room and who have unrealistic adult expectations pixie is that armor, armor pixie that. we'll see when children of the atom finally hits who the next generation there are going to be but
0: I'm not sure those characters are mutants, though, so we'll see how that goes. Josh Moon writes, Hi, Connor, can you explain why Kate is simply not referred to as Shadowcat? Her codename doesn't seem to have the same baggage as Jean's or Rachel's, and yet authors rarely use it. Am I missing something? This is something that's always kind of perplexed me, too, and I think it's Whedon's fault because Whedon has her just start going by Kitty Pride, and that really stuck. In her early history, obviously, she cycles through a bunch of codenames, but Shadowcat settled for a really long time and was sort of the one. You know, in the beginning of Whedon's Astonishing, Emma sort of says, like, Shadowcat, Sprite, Ariel, like, great. In one of those sort of catty moments they have together, she sort of dismisses them as childish. I don't find Shadowcat particularly childish, and I think it is a good codename for her. I think also, honestly... The fact that she has been referred to as just Kitty Pride now for almost 20 years is part of why a lot of people are having trouble with the Kate Pride change because the branding is Kitty Pride, and that's the character people reference. I mean, like we said, a rapper named herself after Kitty Pride. Similarly, like if Jean Grey wanted to be called Genie suddenly, we would all have difficulty making that adjustment because we call her Jean Grey. We don't call her Phoenix. We don't call her Marvel Girl. I don't know. What do you think about Shadowcat and the way it has fallen out of use?
1: I think that Shadowcat is a great code name, And if Kate wanted to start going by Shadowcat tomorrow, I would be all for it. I can see why she doesn't. And her decision, I, I still have mechanics number one open in front of me. And she says later in that issue, I was Shadowcat when I was in the X-Men. Right. She continues to be, at that point, Kitty Pride in Mechanics, in Extreme, in the the late Claremont stuff.
0: He doesn't get a chance to write her. That's part of why I think Rachel's characterization gets so weird, because he kind of just starts writing her as Kitty, because he can't have Kitty.
1: My understanding of who got to write who when, when Whedon was supposed to be writing the Whedon team, is that it was a giant mess, and it's almost impossible to make the timeline work, because the issues came in so late that they couldn't be lined up with the continuity.
0: Yeah, it is it is really, really difficult to fit Whedon's Astonishing into an, a holistic reading Because order.
1: he was in the almost unique position of he wouldn't be fired. Right. Uh,
0: so they could be as late as he felt like. Yeah,
1: which is yet another power move. Uh, but I, I think it is in-universe in comprehensible. Sure, sure. That Kate could say, you know, I haven't yet decided what I want to be for real. And that's also very much about her as a, a young adult who's trying on identities, who hasn't settled into her final form. And when you pick a superhero code name, you are deciding how you want the world to see you. She's also got. Jean Grey is, is not someone whose life story looks like Kate's, but one of the two great loves of Kate's life, Rachel. Also, can't settle on a code name, and the last attempt to give her a superhero code name was laughably wrongheaded, right? Terrible. Whatever she's going to be called is not prestige.
0: I want her to be called Ascani. I think it's time to call her Ascani.
1: I would support that. I would absolutely support that, and so would Kate. But Rachel has been Rachel for quite a long time.
0: But that's because she wasn't allowed to be Phoenix anymore. That was a branding concern. I don't think that's because Rachel doesn't want to be Phoenix. I... You know what I mean? <sighs>
1: I find it in-universe plausible, and I find it in-universe plausible that Kate has resisted being reduced to a superhero code name in her subsequent appearances because she's made so many efforts to not just be a costumed crime fighter.
0: I guess, yeah. I mean, it's not that it's implausible. I just find it odd. I think that it's a strange twist of the character's branding that she just drops it certainly when i was a little kid she was shadow cat and shadow cat was a character everybody knew it just definitely was a distinct branding choice in the aughts to suddenly she's just kitty pride part of me wonders if it's because the excalibur stuff is clearly not whedon's emphasis because so much of that characterization is to me something of a regression to the pre-excalibur
1: version of the character that's right that's right
0: so in terms of why, unclear, it's a branding decision that was made, and now it doesn't make sense in the current moment because she's doing something new. So it makes sense that, as she always has when she's doing something new, she has a new outfit and a new code name. I mean, that is sort of what she likes to do.
1: The Red Queen Captain Kate Pride of the Marauder.
0: Yeah, like, she, it's a new start. And on some level, the Kitty to Kate change is the same thing. It's her taking on a new code name that's right like she's always into representing herself in a new way i mean she was star lord for a minute yeah which i think actually was an important step we talked about her feminine presentation earlier i think that her presentation as star lord which was very massive I mean, she's literally in her male love interest superhero identity yeah was an important step on the road to red queen kate who has this more androgynous pirate Style.
1: I think that's right.
0: She sort of has accepted the idea that she doesn't have to present super feminine all the time if she doesn't want to, or if she feels more comfortable presenting in a more androgynous fashion style.
1: And that to express herself, she doesn't have to be more femme than she wants to be. The other in-universe justification for her keeping the training uniform for so long is that she didn't want to have to design another costume that expressed her, that she just got worn out on doing that. And this this speaks to butch and femme as identities. Mm Mm-hmm. Her love interests are butch or are sword lesbians. Right. Right. Ileana's not really butch or femme. She's a sword lesbian. That's a thing.
0: Ileana's kind of like a hard femme.
1: That's accurate. That's accurate. But Kate hasn't seen someone she wants to look like. She has to make it up. Right. And that always makes it harder. And that's, that distinguishes her.
0: It all goes kind of back to the Storm thing, right? It's like she thought that the person she wanted to be was 70s Storm. And then she was alarmed by 80s Storm. And now she's kind of threading the needle a little bit between the two. A little bit, you know?
1: I do not disagree.
0: Daniel Perez writes, Hi, Connor and wonderful guests. Love the podcast. Been a loyal listener since your first episode. But this is my first time sending you a question. Kitty Pryde has always been an intriguing, relatable character since she first debuted, and throughout the years has become one of the most developed members of the X-Men. Small town girl, student, courageous teammate, swordswoman, college student, headmistress, guardian of the galaxy, and now a pirate and member of the Hellfire Club. Her radical shifts remind me of more popular characters outside of the X-Men, like Spider-Man and Captain America. And even when those guys had their phases, get it, they don't hold a candle to how far Kate has been while still maintaining a popular fan base. My question is, why does Kate have such an adaptable quality compared to other heroes? Is it because writers see so much in her since most grew up with the character? Or is it because the X-Men, like their stand-in for marginalized groups, speak on a multi-generational level? Thank you for answering Love Your Show. What do you think? Oh, Take it away.
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, I want to say that, that all of those answers are correct. I also want to say that Kate, as a fully realized young teen, when she shows up, as long as she's handled by writers who know what they're doing and artists who won't get her wildly wrong, of course, she's going to grow up and mature and change and still feel like herself. And she's going to probably change more than a lot of adults do because that's what teens do. Some adults change a ton between age 40 and age 50. I think I did. Uh, But of course, I keep seeing myself in teenage characters. And for teens, it is expected. So of course, this is someone who we expect to change and who expects herself to change and grow.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that it also comes down to the fact that for so many people, she was, again, the identification character. So I think every writer has an idea for a spin on her because it's personal right and so you get a lot of wide shots like let's see if something sticks because people i think are more willing to experiment with a character like that than they are with a character like captain america or batman who are just sort of larger than life iconic
1: i think i put it slightly differently because the character is so strong to begin with and has attracted so much identification when someone experiments with her and it it goes badly it is in-universe explicable. It's, it's Kate trying something new. Yeah,
0: you can fix it. It's like, oh, well, that was the phase, no pun intended, and now I'm back to being the way I was before we tried that. That's right. Like, if this pirate thing doesn't work out, she'll be fine. I think the pirate thing is going to work out. But, I agree. But, you know, we'll see. Ramsey Hassan writes... Howdy, Connor and Stephanie. I'm sure you'll touch on this in your conversation, but what are your favorite Kitty relationships or friendships? My favorite Kitty friendship is the one between Kitty and Emma Frost. My favorite relationship generally is the one between Kate and Emma. I think that it has evolved. I mean, I'm a mark for the 80s material. So the way that it has carried through as an arc from there to now is captivating to me. I love the way Duggan writes them in Marauders. Yeah, me too. I do, though, have a much more, like, uh, oh, it gets me in my heart kind of thing about Kitty and Ilyana, and always have. Yes. The classic Kitty and Ilyana. They haven't interacted that much as Kate and Ilyana. We'll see where that goes. I mean, certainly the tattoo artist she kissed on page looks like Ilyana. very distinctive bangs, right? So, And
1: if you look at the structure of the issue that ends with Kate's first on-page kiss with the girl the issue is structured to give kate and deliana plenty of alone time let's say yep and as with everything about that relationship if you want to see it it's there the comics give you so much room to see it if you're not looking for it you may not see it and that is your loss
0: yeah and claremont has said that rachel was supposed to be kitty's great game romantic end game that's right and I think that's probably true. Yeah. But for me, in the now, like, I want Kate and Ilyana to finally be together. I think it will be funny. I think Piotr deserves it, frankly. <laughs> and I think that it would be a good way for them to kind of both grow as characters and then they don't have to end up together. And in the meanwhile, Rachel can date Betsy. That's my hot take. So
1: I don't know about dating Betsy. <laughs> my sense of that character is still in flux
0: oh i'm a big betsy head
1: Uh, i will say that you're being you're being kind of mononormative about this
0: oh you think they should be a thruple
1: i think that they should talk about it if logan and gene can live on the moon and you know share scott
0: i think if rachel and iliana are willing to share kate then that's fine i think the difference between them and that summer's triad is i think that scott and wolverine are also fucking whereas i'm not sure that rachel and Ilyana are into each other you know what i mean
1: i think you are correct that scott and logan are also getting it on and I, I hope so uh i think that kate and rachel and Ilyana should sit down and talk about it
0: listen it might be worth exploring i'm just saying i don't know i don't know that Ilyana and rachel are each other's type is i guess what i'm saying
1: no they're really not they're really not
0: and I worry about triad relationships where it's two people connecting just to one. I know that that can work. I just don't know necessarily that it would be the best thing for those three characters to be in that dynamic.
1: Rachel would need to have other lovers, and Kate would at some point want to spend the night with a guy, because I think that Kate is uh, Kate is deeply, deeply bisexual. And everyone around her understands that. And I think that, that the way that iliana has been written is as someone who uses her attractiveness and her you know, well-sculpted, well-muscled body as a way of saying, I am in control of every aspect of myself and you're not and I have a sword.
0: It's not unlike Emma, actually.
1: It's, it's not unlike Emma.
0: It's like I'm sexy as a way of expressing that you don't get to touch right. me.
1: But Emma is uh, also a, a fairly sexual person, and...
0: And is not, yeah.
1: Ilyana doesn't really want to have a romantic relationship with anyone not named Catherine Pride, and never has.
0: Yeah, and well, certainly she's never expressed a romantic interest yeah. in anyone on the page, except, if you argue, as I would, with Kate.
1: Unless you count Kate. What I honestly see for the future of Krakoan queer polycules here is that Iliana doesn't really need anybody except Kate. Kate needs Ileana and Rachel. Rachel needs another girlfriend. That's up to Rachel and Betsy fans can debate that. I don't think about Betsy <laughs> enough to have an opinion. Um, <laughs>
0: They've just been laying it on a little thick in X Factor and Excalibur yeah, lately. No, that's
1: you're not wrong. Uh, and that is, that is absolutely sustainable. And I like that it. is absolutely sustainable. And that's, That's what I want for them. And it also makes sense with the amount of, of, frankly, travel that, that Kate and Rachel have to do. Uh, that that nobody's going to feel pinned down in that arrangement.
0: No, I'd be very into like open relationship type stuff for them, especially because, listen, if they all finally get to say on page, we fuck other girls, which like they haven't been allowed to do for 40 years. Yeah. Then you know what? Let's let them fuck a whole bunch of girls, in my opinion. Let's let Rachel just plow through all of the willing and eager ladies of Krakoa. I'm fine with that. I would love that for her. And then once she's gotten her ya out, maybe she and Kate get married or whatever. Because I don't think Ilyana would want something like that. Like, you know, it, it all depends on how you see all the characters. I do think that it's hard for me to choose between them. I feel the chemistry more strongly between Kate and Ilyana. But I think that Kate and Rachel make the most sense as a romantic pairing, in part because I don't know that Ilyana is emotionally capable of being a partner to someone in that way without help from, uh, you know, like, I think the polycule thing could help. I agree with all of that. She's not unlike Logan in that way. Like, I don't think Logan's a good boyfriend. That's part of why that triad is so smart because it's balancing out Scott and Logan's respective flaws.
1: This is one of the the great things about following these ex-characters through so many years of soap operatic adventures. You see not only the damage done by the closet, but you see the damage done by mononormativity because there's no, it's it's not like the law of gravity or the fact that, you know, human beings have a certain number of chromosomes that everyone needs to have one romantic partner who is also their only erotic partner. And the alternative to that is a series of meaningless flings. Ilyana is absolutely capable of giving Kate A, B, and C, but not D and E. And Kate wants A through E and a romantic partner. And Rachel is there for D and E. It really makes sense to me. So the answer is absolutely both. But of course, they need to talk about it. And unless and until they talk about it on page, which I'm not holding my breath, uh, please feel free to imagine it off page.
0: The bigger issue is that Disney Marvel corporate needs to sign off on more characters being textually queer or gay, which they just, you know, that's, that's something that is on some level, I think, not in the control of of the writers or even of editorial. Those are very C-suite kind of decisions with IP this valuable.
1: Well, that's exactly right. But of course, uh, at the time that, that Kate and Iliana are, you know, each other's firsts, uh, no one's allowed to be gay. Jim Shooter says no one's gay in Marvel Comics. And, and, and the ex-office the just says, yeah, yeah, sure.
0: And part of what I think is most claremont about this period is how much gay shit is happening that is clearly happening textually, but that is just not explicitly said. And if that's what we can get, then I'm happy to have that's it. That's right. Essentially, is how I feel about it.
1: That's right. My heart, my little gay heart.
0: Steven Tornero writes, Dear Connor and distinguished guest in the Ten of Swords event, Kate wasn't featured or seemingly involved at all. I would love to see her go back now that she's an adult and has a new sense of self. How do you think she would handle the new and different landscape of Otherworld? What would her interactions with Saturnine look like? Would she and Geo Whitechapel be friends or rivals? After all her time with Excalibur, I want her take on all of this. I loved Ten of Swords. I think it's one of the best X-Men franchise-wide events of all time. I think it's fantastically done. I had one huge complaint about it, and that was that it's a whole event about Saturnine and Kate was not there. Kate and Saturnine have a long and very complicated relationship. In The Sword is Drawn, one of the best textually bisexual Kitty moments is when she sees Saturnine for the first time and Megan is like, oh, that witch I ain't never known what Brian sees in her. Huh? <laughs> and Kitty's like, oh boy, I do. Damn. <laughs> and, and then, of course the very it's almost like 18th century novel stuff like very like pamela you know like yeah the like innocent girl and the older woman with the lesbian subtext who's like manipulating her with courtney ross who's actually sat your nine throughout that early run of excalibur i really find that relationship fascinating it's similarly inappropriate and it's much more inappropriate like we talked about how The Piotr relationship is inappropriate, but it doesn't feel like he's being predatory, at least not intentionally.
1: The Courtney Ross stuff is absolutely predatory. Sat Nine is a predator. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's written that way. I mean, you're supposed to be very uncomfortable with it the whole time.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, there's the famous icing scene, like her 15th birthday. I mean, they make a point of saying she's 15. And Alan
1: Davis has said that he just drew that as a lesbian seduction. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That was absolutely what it was. Frankly, I read it as a sexual encounter. Yeah. And, you know, Courtney is like almost 30. So that's really fucked up.
1: It's really not okay. And that's one of the reasons why Kate doesn't really belong in an Opal Luna Saturnine, Mystic Excalibur-centered event at this point in her evolution as a character. The other reason is that the stories that are really effective that put Kate at the center in Excalibur... Are not stories of mystic hoo ha and the inheritance of the line of Merlin. That's fair. Which is where the Timmy Howard Excalibur stuff and the X of Swords stuff comes from. They're growing up stories or they're stories about Britain as a land of screwed up Tory privilege. Yes,
0: yeah, she does get shunted out of the cross time caper early. Yeah. I guess what I would say is. I wanted to at least see a Kate who's secure in her sexuality react again to her attraction to Opaluna Saturnine, not the evil one. But where it would be more important to me is if, and I imagine she will come back at some point because Tini is invested in all of that old stuff. If Saturnine, yeah. quote unquote Courtney Ross, returns, that is a story that I think Kate needs to be involved in for sure.
1: I agree. I absolutely agree, but X of Swords was not that.
0: Yeah, no, I just would have liked to see Kate look at her from afar and just be like, still hot.
1: That's right. You know,
0: like something right. would have been right.
1: funny. The other note to that is that X of Swords is a magic story, and Kate is a science girl. She, her, her mysterious universe-spanning psychic force magic dimensional people are her girlfriends.
0: That's fair. And she
1: likes space.
0: But that's part of why I thought it was fun to have her on Excalibur and it would be fun to see her in other worlds again. That's right. That's because right. she's so out of place there. That's right.
1: Um, I should, since I just said she likes space, when Sam Humphreys writes her, he has her saying she hates space and she's only there for Peter Quill. I hate that. She loves space.
0: Yeah, that's not correct. I mean, she's an astrophysicist. She, she loves, loves space. space. <laughs> if you go back to X-Men 100, which is an insane issue, by the way, that I reread for this episode, with the neo
1: yeah on the space station
0: yeah and she has a whole monologue about how much that's she loves right. space that's right the neo is a whole other thing and there isn't a question about the neo but we can touch on that briefly because i hate the kitty pride might secretly be a swapped at birth neo baby thing that claremont floats that never goes anywhere thankfully
1: is that claremont is is that stuff claremont's fault
0: yeah it's claremont uh, it's bad uh. I mean, there's not much to say. I think it's really important that Katie Pride be an ethnically Jewish character. That's right. And that those, and so I just really hate that idea point blank. So I would not enjoy that. I would love a character who is a convert to Judaism or something like, like we don't, again, there are not enough Jewish characters, but I think it's very important in terms of Kate's like positioning symbolically that it's like her blood going back to the Holocaust and all of that. You. It's very visceral to her. And so the idea of her being like a secret Neo baby swap, I'm like, no, 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 none of that. And thankfully it was never touched on again. So we don't have to worry about it, hopefully. But if anyone from the X office is listening, please do not bring back that plot. Cause it's, I, th- I find it a little unintentionally anti-Semitic, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I don't think Claremont would intend, but it doesn't, I don't like it.
1: Yeah. I'm actually, I'm, 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 I'm so sad about this that I'm going online to look at the writing credits for that storyline. <laughs> and uh there's <sighs> yeesh uh some of it is claremont credit and some of it is alan davis as writer and it's, it's a mess it's not good
0: it's from that revolution period that is just not good Yeah. fossey chang writes hi connor and professor bert huge fan of the podcast been listening since episode one dropped and can't wait to hear what you both have to say I'm so excited for this Kitty Pride episode. Kitty's been my favorite character since I watched a random rerun of X-Men Evolution in the early 2000s, which was my first exposure to superheroes and the X-Men as a kid. Even before I knew she was Jewish, I saw myself in her impulsivity and naivete in the show. Getting into the comics and realizing we were both Jewish, bisexual, though neither of us had said that part out loud or on panel yet, and committed to justice just solidified her as my favorite character. Since Kitty slash Kate has been allowed to be an adult, she's been often positioned as either a teacher or a combat leader. Her current position as the leader of the Marauders, Red Queen of the Hellfire Club, and member of the Quiet Council fits well with the latter characterization, as well as the Kate pride from Days of Future Past. Do you think there's room for her to return to a teacher role in the new status quo? Should she? I loved her as a mentor to young Jean, but I also felt her time as a teacher aged her, or maybe the pixie cut just added years. What do you think about Kate as a teacher going
1: forward? I am deeply divided. In House of M, which was a mess but was handled by someone who understood the characters. She was a teacher in Cincinnati who had never gotten into the superhero gig because there was no need for her, and she seemed to like it. Mm -hmm. She's good at being a teacher, and she's even good at being a school administrator when that is what she has been called upon to do, and she's very, very good at being an interface between the human world and the world of mutants, she's also pretty good at being, when she wants to be, an interface between the world of angsty teens and the world of adults who want the teens to do things.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: So if the Quiet Council decided that she needed to go be a teacher, now that, fortunately, there is a school on Krakoa again, which there absolutely needed to be, I think she'd be good at it. A lot of her life as an adult has been trying to figure out if she could be anything else. Right. So she gets to use her skills having adventures and visiting new places, and she doesn't have to do any paperwork, I think. I think she's much more fulfilled as a pirate captain. And if I had to think about, you know, what should she do next if she gets tired of being a pirate captain? I think that Space Explorer is probably what she would like to do, ideally with Rachel or Ilyana or both of them.
0: I wouldn't hate her and Rachel on the SWORD station eventually. I think that could be fun.
1: So the problem... Yeah, I think we don't know enough about the internal politics of SWORD, but I I would, that'd be fine.
0: I don't mean imminently. I'd like this era to go on for a decade. Yeah. Right now, I like her on the high seas, right where she is. But I think that could be a fun maybe even just a mini yeah, where like they have a space adventure because Rachel had that time with the star jammers, which again, the Rachel gray period is not my favorite, but she's a cosmic character in some respects. Certainly when she was Phoenix, she was, and Kate has all that history too. It could be a fun place to send them for like a true friends sequel. You know what I mean? Except now it's like, extent of X-Men true friends is X-Men girlfriends.
1: And they don't have to (laughs) deal with the British monarchy.
0: They don't have to go back in time and Kate doesn't have to have a weird flirtation with Moira's grandfather.
1: Yes. My understanding is that the Claremont Archive at Columbia, which I have not gone to read myself yet.
0: Contains the first draft of True Friends, which was Badiliana and was very different. That's right.
1: So, yeah, I would I could see a mini with uh, Kate and Rachel doing space stuff and science stuff in space. I could also see an interplanetary. Kate and Ileana mini, and I could also see future adventures and future minis in which Kate has to solve complex problems of urban local self-governance, or has to go help various mutants.
0: Yeah, I think urban planning and politics is where I would take her. Here's the thing, not everyone is meant for the Academy. And because the X-Men as a book was about a school for so long it made sense that if you wanted to keep characters around, they sort of graduated to becoming instructors to a new class of students. But I don't think that every character is actually built for that. And I think that it's correct that in Vita Ayala's new run on New Mutants, it's Danny and Sean who are really taking that role because I think those characters are more geared to it than Kate is.
1: I think Danny and Sean are great for running the school. I think there are characters who clearly should not be running a school. Right. <laughs> like, I don't know, Bobby. And there are right, characters yeah, exactly. ...who clearly should be in charge of training a group of young mutants to deal with the complexities of the outside world, like Danny or Emma.
0: Yeah, I like Ilyana training them to fight, but I wouldn't trust Ilyana to be a teacher.
1: Ilyana wouldn't trust Ilyana to be a teacher. Ilyana actually has a, a complex relationship with self-distrust, especially when she's not around Kate. But yeah, I think it's very optional. I think Kate Kate makes a good teacher when she wants to be, but it's okay if she doesn't want to be that anymore. She's sort of been there and done that.
0: Right. That's my feeling as well.
1: Yay! This is so much fun. I love (laughs) these questions too.
0: I'm having fun also. Augustine Zuniga writes... I'd like to hear Connor's gripes with Whedon's depiction of Kitty explained in full. It's something that has been teased throughout the podcast in multiple episodes, and now is the time for all that foreshadowing to pay off. I'll just give it to you straight, and then Stephanie and I could tease this out a little bit, I guess. My issue with Whedon's Kitty is I think that she is a regression in characterization. I was very attached to to the Kitty of Excalibur, and I feel like the Whedon Kitty jumps directly from Mutant Massacre to Whedon's Astonishing, with maybe a tiny stopover in Revolution-era Claremont. Or, like, that moment when she and Marrow were in the sewers. Like, that's a great issue.
1: That's such a great issue.
0: That issue of Unlimited is great.
1: X-Men Unlimited, I think, 23, written by Brian K. Vaughan.
0: Yeah, that's a great one. And very, very gay, by the way, because Marrow (laughs) is in love with her. Oh. But all that aside, more on that when I get to a Marrow episode. Yes. The Whedon characterization, what typifies it, and this really is what set me off from the very beginning, is several times Cyclops, Kitty herself, and then Danger, who is an objective assessing computer, all say Kitty is not a fighter. Kitty has like seven black belts. Kitty is a martial artist almost on par with some of the top martial artists in the Marvel Universe. Kitty was an Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Briefly in the 90s, which like is not a good miniseries, but it happened. I have no
1: problem happened. ignoring Kitty Pride, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D.
0: I'm just saying it happened. Yes. If we're looking at the whole continuity, ever since the Kitty Pride and Wolverine mini in the 80s when Ogun implanted her with a lot of martial arts knowledge she followed up on that by actually training in it she sort of incorporated all of her dance training into learning how to fight she's a very accomplished fighter one of the things i love about marauders is the way that jerry is incorporating that by having her use and like i get the idea that it's like her power is not Threatening is what they keep saying. Except Kitty can use her power and does in the Weed and run in astonishingly threatening ways. She can reach into you and threaten to unfaze. She can do all kinds of shit, and I love the way Jerry is having her use that power to do martial arts and to swashbuckle and all of that stuff in Marauders. So that was the first thing: was it felt like he was regressing Kitty in personality to who she was when she was fourteen, which I didn't like. The way she talks to Emma is so petulant. She and Emma should have friction. They have a long history together. But it's just very petty and catty and feels like I'm a good girl and you're a bad girl in a way that's like very Madonna whore complex that I think inundates Whedon's work and that I really object to. Yeah. Then there was the way that I felt like it undercut all of her development in terms of her actual prowess as a superhero and a combatant. And I'm not someone who is obsessed with like feats. I think that power should serve the story, not the other way around. But the fact of the matter is that Kitty is an extremely accomplished hand-to-hand combatant. So it was a bizarre tweak. I hate, hate, hate. First of all, I hate that they brought back Colossus at all. I think Colossus should have stayed dead. Can you imagine if Colossus had stayed dead from the Legacy Virus storyline to Krakoa? The impact of bringing him back on Krakoa? When instead, he came back in a nothing storyline that no one ever talks about. Like, who cares about the break world? Not a soul. Came back specifically so that Whedon could have him and Kitty fuck now that she's an adult, which I also found weird, especially when their sex is so great that she phases through the floor and falls naked into the living room, which I think is a disgusting scene. It's so sexualizing and disrespectful of the character, in my opinion. It doesn't feel empowering to me. It's clearly meant to be like, Kitty finally gets what she wants. And I'm like, actually, Kitty's been over him for a long time. Yes. What Kitty wants is not to fall naked into the room where, like, people are congregate. Like, I really hate that scene. The whole thing gets tied up in her relationship with Piotr to the point where Cassandra Nova, which let's not even get into how much I hate the Cassandra Nova storyline in Whedon. Cassandra Nova's big play that she does via manipulating Emma is to trap Kitty in a fantasy where she experiences several years of her life with Piotr and they get married and they have a baby and then the whole thing becomes about Kitty trying to rescue her baby, which I hate. It all becomes about her mommy feelings. It's bizarre. It's not who the character is to me. And it, again, makes it all about Piotr and about her relationship to Piotr, which I don't like. And then the story ends. With Whedon deciding, now that I've written my definitive take on Kitty Pride, the character I've been obsessed with since I was 12, I'm going to put her in a giant metal dick that's shooting through space. It would be one thing to just kill her off. I'm going to write a storyline so contrived that there is no way it would be easy for a writer to bring her back, because I don't want any other man touching my girl. That's, that's how right. it feels that's to exactly me. And it's disgusting. How that feels.
1: That's exactly how that storyline feels.
0: I am contemptuous of it. I think it's gross. I think it damaged her characterization for years to come because when she does come back, she's still very much characterized like the Whedon Kitty until Bendis, in my opinion. That's right. I said to Stephanie when we were talking before we did this episode that I think there are two kinds of straight men who write Kitty Pride. <laughs> or who now write Kate. And <laughs> this is now, Jerry, if I'm, editorializing I apologize but the way I see it is most straight men who read the X-Men had a crush on Kitty when they were growing up and they will readily admit that to you it's happened on this podcast numerous times with all my flat-scan guests
1: and it will happen again
0: and it will happen again and that's fine she's a lovable character I think that when you are a straight man approaching a female character who you have that kind of investment in a romantic or sexual or crush kind of investment there are sort of two types of guys, right? There are the guys who want to tame Kitty and sort of dominate her. They want to tame that brat. And then there are the guys who are like, step on me, queen. They wouldn't phrase it that way because that's kind of gay. But like, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're just sort of, they they want to be domed. Chris Claremont is a sub. That's pretty clear from everything he has ever written, right? (laughs) Like, Chris Claremont's obsessed with dominatrices. No, you're not wrong.
1: You are not at all wrong. So
0: when he's writing Kitty, it's because he wants Kitty to grow up into a fierce Claremont dame who could kick his ass.
1: He's also capable of writing stories in which people sexualize her and of writing stories in which people do not sexualize her. Correct. Because like Marjorie Liu, like Bendis, like Jerry Duggan, he's someone, like Sean and McGuire, the tools are there to take her in a lot of different directions, some of which are about her love life and some of which are not.
0: Yeah, and I think that you can tell when the writer is someone who wants to control her. And Whedon, to me, is someone who wanted to tame Kitty to turn her into a good girl to make her what he thought a good woman should be. And I found it loathsome. And I think that Bendis is someone who, like Claremont and now like Duggan, is more interested in letting Kitty or Kate blossom into a powerful woman who they're a little intimidated by, but they think that's cool. You know what I mean? It's a different energy. If you're going to assign any more straight men to write Kate ever again, they need to be straight guys who are into powerful women and not into breaking women as their power fantasy, which well, I think is obsession. Well, why would you Wheaton's want to obsession.
1: assign writers who are into breaking women to their power fantasies to anything at all? Just like Well, right, except
0: that comics do it all the time. Yeah, yes. I'd like to just throw them all out. Yes. Unfortunately, there's a lot of them, and it's a yeah. sort of institutional problem, right?
1: Well, they seem to be mostly out of the ex-office for now, so... Thank... Yay that. ...God. Yeah. Yeah,
0: no, I couldn't be more happy with the talent in the ex-office. I know. The only things, I've said this on previous episodes, I would like to see more talent of color in the office, and I would like to see a Jewish person. One. And there may be someone I'm not aware of, but I do think that given how provocative a lot of the Krakoa stuff is, and given how prominent Kate is in this era, it would be good editorially... To have someone in the office who could... I mean, look at what just happened in Immortal Hulk. I think that Marvel needs like more diversity of staff generally, but it seems to me like they need a Jew or two on editorial.
1: Having a a Jewish writer on a title wouldn't...
0: Necessarily solve it, correct. I think it's more of an editorial thing, and I love the editorial staff in the X office right now, but I just feel like... I don't know. If there isn't a Jewish person, I feel like there should be.
1: I have no idea whether—I have no idea— what, But I don't like, know. I could they, be wrong. Whether they go to shul. But the, I, I, I agree with you that there there need to be Jewish staff. And there's also—since I, I since we're talking about Jewish representation and, like, that's us, I do want to acknowledge that the world is—and and the United States, even— is full of ethnicities that have deep, interesting stories to be told about them that that we haven't seen in X characters at all. It would be nice to have an Armenian-American character. Sure. It would be nice to have a character who has a relationship to the Mormon church. There are a lot of kinds of real-world identities whose intersections with mutant kind have not yet been explored at all. That said, there are canon Jewish characters already. Kate is the one who means the most to me. It would be great to see jewish people involved in stories with her
0: the one that means a lot to me because of my own journey and i've mentioned this before is polaris i don't know i would love someday to be able to write a story about that about her finding out that she i mean i always knew but about her finding out she's jewish as an adult and deciding how she feels about it i that, think would be really interesting that
1: would be very that would be really cool
0: i would really love but to no, write that <laughs> my
1: examples of identities I haven't seen are Armenian Americans and Mormons. And that's mostly because they live in a town that has historically had a strong Armenian and a strong Mormon presence. It, it, it's just possible that there are X characters with those identifications, and I have forgotten about them.
0: I think the Armenian point is really interesting because I do think that the specter of genocide has always been a big part of the X-Men. And I think that yeah, it is useful to have characters who can speak to historical atrocity when yeah. you're talking about this stuff. I similarly, you know, I grew up in a town with a lot of Kosovar Albanians, and I think that oh. that is an identity that we haven't really seen in Marvel comics that I can think of. Yeah. That would be an interesting thing to bring in. You know, Claremont wanted Nightcrawler to be Jewish. Did you know that?
1: I did not know that. He
0: fought for it, and Byrne and Roger Stern objected because they thought that it was implausible. What? Basically, like, there weren't that many Jews in Germany at that time who would be Kurt's age. So it seemed like a reach. Then they also argued, they were like, we already gave him the Romani backstory. Like, isn't that already sort of interesting enough? And Cockrum objected, not because of the Jewish thing, but because Cockrum was an avowed atheist. And as Nightcrawler's creator, was really invested in Kurt not being religious. Uh, Which obviously... Yeah, that didn't happen. Did not, you know. When Claremont was told, don't make him Jewish... I think he then introduced Kitty Pride instead and then pivoted Kurt into another religious storyline because he wanted Kurt to be religious. He, he liked the irony of the demon character being this pious oh, yeah. guy.
1: Yeah. And this is very, very Claremont and to some extent Simonson and Descenti. You work with an artist, the artist gives you an image, and you do things with the visual template that the artist did not expect and often didn't like.
0: Listen, Mystique was a doodle Dave Cockrum did one day in the office because he was bored. Chris Claremont saw the doodle and said, who is she? What is her deal? What's her power? And he was like, she's a pretty lady. I don't know, like.
1: With skulls.
0: Patty made her blue because she thought it looked cool. We really weren't. We were just fucking around. That's a fun bit.
1: That's where creativity comes from.
0: The Jewish Nightcrawler, what might have been, is and I think is another example of Claremont's interest in Jewish-Romani solidarity. Yeah. In the wake of the Holocaust, the way that he did with Magneto and his wife, and therefore with Pietro and Wanda, who are supposed to be the offspring of that. I think that if Kurt was supposed to be a Jew adopted by Romani people and in a relationship with Amanda, who was Romani, it has that quality as well. Yeah. So just an interesting what might have been. I like Kurt as a Catholic, though. I think it's very appropriate. I agree. I I think that fits the character way better. I agree. So, that's my take on Whedon. I think I've been pretty emphatic. If there's anything that's not clear, let me know. (laughs) I really do not like X-Men Gold.
1: It mostly doesn't work.
0: It mostly does not work, and part of what I really don't like about it is I think that it's just, that's a very Whedon kitty to me.
1: Guggenheim degays everyone.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, Rachel most disturbingly
1: lesbian characters are not people who he understands at all he does not understand he doesn't understand rachel remotely the side of kitty that makes bad decisions because she feels that she owes something to a guy who's got a thing for her is it regresses her but she's back where she was living with when she was 15 with the people she was living with when she was 14 and 15 she's gonna experience is like when you go to your parents' house for the holidays and suddenly you're the person you were then oh
0: but how creepy is it that he moved into her room while she was gone oh yeah no it's it's
1: it is it is creepy (laughs) i think that guggenheim actually sort of understands the part of kitty that is into guys and that, that always has her teenage self all too available, even though she's supposed to be a responsible adult and she's trying hard gold as, as a whole, it's, it's, it's not good, but the way that the wedding worked out, which was, I'm sure by committee. Yeah. And, and the rumor is that Donnie Cates was the person who came up with, let's have Kate turn Peter down at the last moment, and then use the ceremony and the available cleric to marry Rogue and Remy instead. And I, I love the way that it worked out. I
0: love that it's Iliana who convinces her essentially that she's making a mistake.
1: Of That's course, it's Iliana, and that I think it's two pages. Yeah, marrying the wrong Rasputin is what's not said, but it's what's implied. Because they're not ready to, to get back together romantically, they're going to just have to take some time. As they did, if you look at exactly when Claremont starts hinting that they're dating. It's really after the Zaji stuff.
0: After Colossus breaks up with Kitty, yeah.
1: That's right. Everyone involved with X-Men Gold number 30 gets a cookie, even <laughs> though everyone involved with a number of earlier issues of X-Men Gold like gets whatever the opposite of a cookie is. Fair enough. Uh, a really terrible cookie. This panels where they're on the roof, and whoever wrote that dialogue, I just think if it were meant to happen it would have happened already. And then Eliana does what she always does whenever she does something really good, which is says that she's evil inside. And then Kate does what she <laughs> always does, which is they know I love you and you're my best friend. Yeah. It, it God, just hits all so the good. beats. And it's, they're so and, good. And the art team there is great. It's it Honestly, I would say that it justifies, if you're going to go back and read X-Men Gold, uh, don't read it from the beginning. I would say start around number 20 so you get the whole interplanetary nonsense.
0: Like definitely don't start from the beginning. Oh god, god no. And
1: but and just when just when you think this is a mononormative heteronormative train wreck of a book, you get to the wedding and it all works out. And the other thing that's worth that does work out there is X-Men Gold 36, the very last issue. Yeah, that one's good. Yeah, it's just it's it's a day in the life of of Kate Pride.
0: The one thing I don't love about that is actually that they let Guggenheim do a follow-up in, like, Marvel 1001. I would have preferred that we never find out what happens to that kid.
1: So, I haven't read Marvel 1001. That's the one that has, like, no women involved, right? There's, like, 40 artists and they're all dudes.
0: <laughs> I believe so. I don't remember. I don't remember.
1: I, I didn't I didn't get it for free and I decided that if they were going to have that many people on a project and they were all men, I was like... Were there really
0: no men? I, I didn't read it when it came out, okay. so I... I'd if there was a controversy. You find out he survived. And I'm just like, that is less interesting to me than doing a lady or the tiger kind of thing where we don't know and it doesn't really matter. I right? agree.
1: Although in a Claremont universe, the answer is always the tiger lady. Choose the tiger lady. Of course. Yes, it's both.
0: Right. Trevor writes, hi, Connor and Stephanie. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I'm learning so much every week. The conversations are great. And I love slowly learning all of the Connor lore. I have a question about Kitty's role as a leader. Do you think she's earned her position as a headmistress, leader of the X-Men, and governing figure in Krakoa? Is she more worthy than contemporary characters like Jubilee or Danny Moonstar? I understand that her seniority has something to do with this, but what else has led to her climbing the ranks? Thanks, Tree.
1: Oh, do you want to take that or should I?
0: I'm of a couple minds. I think that there is a nepotistic element. I think that she is... Storm and Wolverine's child, essentially, and that that entitles her to jump ahead in ways that it always has. Storm and Wolverine said, no, she needs to stay on the X-Men. She can't be a new mutant. They've always sort of interceded on her behalf as her influential parents. And now Emma is also like her influential parent. You know, I I like in the first issue of Marauders that it becomes very clear very quickly that Kate was not Emma's first choice to be Red Queen. (laughs) I think that's very funny and very real. Emma has enormous regard for Kate, but would Emma prefer to put Storm in that position of power? Absolutely. Then was, like, Emma interested in, well, what about the Cuckoos? They are much more reliable. Like, you know, that made sense. But when it came down to Kate, she's excited about that possibility. It's just she's a little more skeptical, whereas, like, Storm and Wolverine would have put her in charge of Anything I think that she asked for. I think that it is at the expense of characters like Danny Moonstar. Danny, in particular, I think is a character who's just gotten kind of fucked because in the 80s, she's positioned textually on page as like the next Cyclops. Yeah. And to Claremont, she's very clearly the protagonist of New Mutants. Yeah. I think that that shifts when Claremont leaves and Simonson takes over. And then, obviously, Liefeld writes her out. Yeah. Then when she comes back in Nesies' Ex-Force, it's in a more supporting role. It's a cool role, like the sort of, is she evil now? Is she secretly working with us? What's going on? And then... They give her the teacher role with Sean in the new New Mutants run that becomes Academy X. Yeah. But then the Decimation, she's the sacrificial character for the Decimation. She's the only important character who loses her powers permanently. Yeah. Until very, very recently, like a year ago. Yeah. To the point where in the Zeb Wells New Mutants, which I love. Yeah. Me too. There's a lot of tension between her and Sam because Cyclops is grooming Sam for leadership, but it really is Danny who should be, except that she's not a mutant anymore. So her positionality in the group becomes very complicated.
1: Which happened to Storm earlier, right?
0: Yes, in
1: the 80s. Yeah, when Storm was depowered. But
0: no one was willing to let Storm quit.
1: Right. (laughs) They were
0: like, we need you
1: anyway. If Storm is available to lead your group, you take advantage of her ability. The only
0: time Storm came up with that leadership was when she was like, I need to go on vacation for a minute. You know, like, I need to take a second.
1: Yeah, but Kate has never had to truly be the one with whom all the bucks stop. Kate has never really been in charge of everyone with no source of appeal. Unless you count her role... As the headmaster of the the school in Central Park during X-Men Gold, which doesn't last that long and doesn't rec- she's almost like the CEO who reports to a board.
0: She's a figurehead. She's not really doing the day to day
1: because, right, she does paperwork because there's so many other older mutants around. And what Kate is good at and what Kate is actually used to is being a kind of second in command or a person to whom authority is delegated by the older, more powerful characters who trust her. Yeah. And I don't know that she minds that. I think Captain Kate Pride of the Marauder is someone who decides what to do with the ship and how to fight bad guys and how to interact with different ports and countries, but she's not running the hellfire trading company and she doesn't want to she's at exactly the point in her life where she wants to be the second in command and that's really all that she's ever been and i can't see jubilee enjoying that role
0: right it's a lot like how Cyclops is better suited to being a field commander and a military leader than he is to being a headmaster or a political leader. And he's embraced that finally about himself. And I think that Kate is similarly embracing that about herself. That is
1: exactly correct. And the, the one on-page interaction that I most want to see more of, and, and there is some of this during the Utopia era, which I, I like... Nobody likes Decimation as an event, but the writers who got the toys to play with after Joe Quesada said you have to depower everybody. uh, Some of those writers, I like what they do with characters, especially Matt Fraction.
0: Oh, see, I'm not I'm not big on Fraction X-Men. He did write
1: 522.
0: He did write 522. That's the one Fraction issue I like. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. (laughs) I don't like how he writes Emma. And I really, really don't like how he writes Madeline Pryor.
1: I'm not going to defend Madeline Pryor. Well,
0: it's also, it's not really Madeline, but that's a topic for another day.
1: That is another episode, yeah. Uh, But but be that as it may, uh, I would like to see Kate and Scott have a talk about being field leaders and second in command and tactical leaders and having to deal with... The extreme amount of responsibility that they both felt both to their mentor figures sort of from above Mm -hmm. and to the young and vulnerable and sometimes clueless mutants they want to help from below. Because they both have that kind of sandwich experience, which I think Sam Guthrie has felt that, but not that many other characters have felt that kind of sandwichness.
0: I would like to see the two of them and Eric interacting also because Scott and Eric became so close during Scott's radical period, obviously, and Kate and Eric have such a history going back to Uncanny 150 when his whole turn toward good comes from him thinking he's killed this little girl. That's right. Then they're bonding in 200 at the Holocaust Memorial together. Yeah. And that all leads into, yes, 522, which is an incredible issue where the resolution that Fraction comes up with for the bullet plot.
1: Is in Yiddish.
0: Yeah, you have Magneto prove himself to the Utopians as a reformed guy by nearly killing himself to pull Kitty out of space and bring the bullet back. And when she lands and falls out of it and is all fucked up, he says to her in Yiddish, "Du bist sudar tzatzkala. And I've seen this translated incorrectly a lot of places on the on the web. And, and Yiddish is a complicated language, so there are multiple meanings to certain things. But what he says essentially is, you're too skinny, uh, which is something that a Jewish parent might say to you. He says, you're too thin, like you're too skinny, you need to eat something, which is a very like ethnic parent expression, right? Like of, of, of affection, saying you look like shit.
1: If that's what it means, it's also a rebuke to people who have drawn her as a sex object and to people who've treated her as a sex object.
0: I just like it as the idea of like, look at you out in space for years. We got to fatten you up. It's parental. That's what I'm saying.
1: Poor kid. Let's take care of you.
0: Yeah. And Satskala can mean a lot of things, but it's like a term of endearment. I've seen it translated as bimbo. I think on CannyXMen.net was like, it's an insulting term. I'm like, no, no, no. Like you would, it means little toy you could use it to mean like a bimbo, like if you were saying it dismissively about a woman, but it's also something you would call a pet, mm-hmm. like a kitten or a puppy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. He's, he's basically saying like, Kitty, you're so skinny. Like we need to get some meat on your-
1: We need to take care of you. And
0: then he passes out with like blood pouring out of his eyes yeah. or whatever, you know, it's a great moment. It honors everything about their relationship together up to that point. I would like more of that. The very profound- jewish connection between them i think is very important to the claremont stories and i would like to see it carried through that's right
1: and the reason that we don't see as much kate magneto interaction during the revolutionary cyclops uncanny run is that kate when she's not in space is busy in all new right educating and taking care of the teen x-men because again her job is to be in between the elder authoritative generation who are really in charge and the teens who need a relatable mentor. That's something she, and this gets back to why isn't she a teacher? She is. She's teaching. We've seen her teach She teaches all the
0: time, right? Yes. Yeah, Yeah. She but, doesn't need to be in the academy right. Wait, to be that, a teacher the, of young people. That
1: answers the question, what kind of leader is she? And the answer is she's a great tactical leader. She's a great teacher. She's a great communicator. She does not, she does not belong in charge of the whole Megillah at this stage in her life, and no one wants that for her.
0: The last question is one that I thought was a good note to end on in terms of our broader discussion. Kai Rubens writes, Do you think Kate's Marauder's characterization and actions are partly an attempt to break with the toxic nostalgia that has typified the character's modern history in books such as Astonishing X-Men by Whedon, X-Men Gold, and Age of X-Men? Do you think it's even possible to make a break like that a lasting change in a medium that relies on returns to the status quo, which in Kate's case appears to be either 1982 or 2005? Oh, I think that's a great question. I do think that there's a very deliberate attempt here to break out of the kitty in that training uniform thing of the last 20 years. It is definitely a bold new statement that's part of why they changed the character's name. Because like I said, the branding was Kitty Pride TM, like they had abandoned all code names and now it's Kate Pride. We're doing a full rebrand. To me, it's a synthesis because Duggan also fought back against the toxic elements, like the nostalgia for the Whedon kitty, essentially. Because having her put her necklace back on, I know that it's not always consistent in the art, but I know that Jerry puts that in his scripts. Yeah. Giving her the curls back. Yeah. Making her talk about being Jewish. Like that stuff is great. Leaning into her sapphic tendencies which is a claremont thing that has been not really explored by other writers much at all i think that it feels like a return i mean to me it's the first time outside of flashes in bendis that i have felt like the character is really herself since excalibur ended like there have been bits and pieces here or there where i'm like that's a good issue and bendis had moments where i was like that's that's my kitty it feels like her but it's also something entirely new i don't know if it will last forever i don't know if Krakoa will last forever right i mean that's the thing no
1: one does that's why they can't have precogs
0: right and the fact of the matter is unless you are emma frost hellfire club titles are very transient right so i don't know if she will stay the red queen will she stay captain kate of the marauder I hope so. I think this is a new X franchise that could last for a very long time and that you could rotate people in and out of her crew and that you could make it a real ongoing team book in the way that Excalibur was for a decade, in the way that X Factor, I'm on record as finding the overall arc of it very mixed, but X Factor Investigations went on for a hundred issues. You absolutely could make this a new direction for the character that sticks in the way that Detective Madrox stuck.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. I think that it is out of universe. The questioner is, I think, exactly right, that this is an attempt to say no now. She's new and different, and and she's grown up, and this is what she does. And she's not the training uniform character, and she's not, I I forget what blogger a couple years ago called her Everybody's Girlfriend. It was a very dismissive, sort of snotty piece uh But she's she is no longer the girl who
0: she's not a blank slate. You can project your affections onto anymore. She's
1: she's not this girl next door figure. Right. And she's not the Whedon Kitty at all who who was very much like someone who could be owned by by the by the straight male writer. Yeah, uh, she's not that and she's not 14 and she's herself and she's grown up in universe. It makes so much sense that this is who she wants to be right now. And it is continuous with the other ways in which the character has wanted to evolve and has tried to evolve, uh, especially post-resurrection, when so many strands of who she is have come into the relatively small amount of page count we've seen on her since the resurrection. So many strands of her previous identity are getting acknowledged by what she's doing as captain right now, and this gets us back to And I don't know if this is full circle-y or a big ball of cheese or something, but the years or decades, really, where her default state was phased, Mm -hmm. her difficulty having a body, her difficulty finding a crew, her difficulty in figuring out who she was going to be once she stopped being the person who all the adults loved and who all the sort of -of out-of-universe boys reading her loved and some of the girls when she was 14— speaks to questions that a lot of us who come out as adults uh, or who experience radical transformations in how we want to be seen have to confront in real life, which is how much of who we used to be do we want to bring with us and how much of who we used to be should or can we bring with us.
0: And how much should we fire out of the cannon or make walk the plank or whatever you want, right. however you want to put it, you know, in the,
1: drop in the, the, the South China Sea,
0: the flotsam and jetsam of our past, essentially, right. Right. what do you keep with you? What do you take on the boat?
1: Right, right. And there's so many real life models of, and in particular, how to be trans. I think this has to do with, I think this has to do with entering a disability community as well, but I'm, I, I not really part of a disability community in that way. So I. I leave that as an exercise for the reader. It certainly has to do with coming out as trans. Uh, You get, at least if you're my age, two extremely limiting and bad models for how to do that before you do it. One is that you have to blow up your life and start over. And if you're not willing to blow up your life and start over from scratch, then you're not really trans and you don't deserve to transition. And the other model says... If you're really trans, then you always knew exactly who you wanted to be all along and you were always this girl inside, in my case since I'm a woman. And, and you're simply, uh, you know, rubbing off the bad paint job to showing what was always there and it's not really a change. And neither of those models is at all consistent with my experience or really most of my trans friends' experience of coming out as who we are. You keep some things, you change some things, you lose some things, you're different, but at least some of your social attachments, and maybe your romantic attachments are the same. It's a synthesis. And the captain Kate, Red Queen, pirate get up, neither butch nor femme identity that that she has, uh, which is an amazing projection of power within a system. And technically, by the way, she's not a pirate. She's a privateer.
0: Oh, yes, yeah, she is a privateer. She's working on behalf of a state.
1: right. She's as, as a privateer, she is the synthesis.
0: But a system is a good word for it because like she is a cis character, but she is embodying
1: a synthesis. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She's a cis character whose history and power set is a very, very good metaphor for trans identity.
0: Resonant. Yeah. I think that's a good bow to tie on our whole conversation on our way out i know that you have a poem about kate that is going to be in one of your upcoming books that you wanted to read so why don't you do that and then we'll start to wrap
1: i've actually got five or six ex-relevant poems a couple of which are literally sapphic adaptations
0: (laughs) well i have a sappho tattoo so i'm i'm a sappho head myself Ooh,
1: which is it sappho
0: 31 or which one is it (laughs) um I believe that even in the future, men will remember us.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, because you were a classics major. I was, yeah. Oh, yeah. The chapbook that Rain Taxi Editions is doing this spring, it's like a zine. It's like a glossy staple-bound zine kind of thing that's poetry. They're called Chapbooks in the Poetry World, yes. which has a whole bunch of ex poems in it. It's going to be out from Rain Taxi Editions in Minneapolis probably in May. Mary Hampson did the cover. Uh, we're still laying it out. I'm really excited about it. Uh, it has a, a version of Sappho 31, uh, which standardly begins, he seems to be equal to a god that man is next yeah. to you, that is spoken by Ilyana at the wedding.
0: Oh, that's very funny.
1: So I'm going to leave that as an exercise for the reader. I'm going to read <laughs> instead the last poem <laughs> in the book, uh, which is a very long line it's a poem called The Villanelle, where some of the lines come back and come back and come back, and then they change a little bit, the way Kate changes until... They become something new. Uh, So it is currently called, and and thank you for encouraging me to do this, uh, Villanelle of Kate the Pirate Queen. I used to be the most relatable gifted child the world has ever seen in my Yoda sleep shirts and point shoes. Come at me. I'd take it. I used to be everyone's sweetheart. Now I'm a brass-buckled, leather-booted pirate queen. I used to hold newcomers' hands. We could hit them all if you were sad, and if you were mean, we could fix that with ice skates, cocoa, and pie. I'd bake it. I used to be the most relatable, gifted child the world has ever seen, though I preferred circuits to circle skirts. You could sit me in front of any cathode-ray terminal, console, futuristic machine, or robo-nimrod, and I'd neutralize, rewire, reprogram, or remake it. I used to be everyone's go-to girl for tech support. Now I'm a scarlet pirate queen. I was the acceptable face of the unaccepted, sweet politic gaze on a screen, proving any of us was like anybody else because I had taught myself to fake it. I used to be the winsomest, wide-eyed, gifted child the world had ever seen. I stayed in school till I could run the school, but strangers still believed I was 15. I still like equations and costume closets, but now I love my sloop and the hungry wake it leaves on the froth of the open ocean, now that I'm an implacable privateer or pirate queen. If growing up means dying, I've died and then some. I came back sharp, crisp, and clean. I'm trusting enough you can fool me once. I'd rather ignore a barrier than break it. I used to be everyone's confidant, pert, first crush, best friend, transparent like you've never seen. I used to be responsibility. Now I'm your bare knuckle, blades drawn, power politics, bisexual pirate queen.
0: That was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And why don't you now share it with the listeners where they can follow you online?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: And plug anything else you want to plug.
1: Yeah, so I've got a whole bunch of, of uh, books that are poetry things, and the more recent ones have dozens of X-Men Easter eggs in them. There's a book called Don't Read Poetry, a book about how to read poems out from basic books right now. There's a book of uh, adaptive translations and imitations from ancient Greek called After Callimachus, which... Uh, Connor, I will send you if you want it. If you're That'd be lovely. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, send me your street address when we're done taping, sure. and I'll make sure it, it gets to you from New Jersey. Uh, so that came out in 2020. Um, I am on Twitter as Accommodatingly, A-C-C-O-M-M-O-D-A-T-I-N-G-L-Y. And if you can't spell it, and this is a Connor catchphrase you have not used once, I think, in this recording, if you can't spell it, don't worry about it.
0: Oh, it's mostly in the character files. (laughs) Okay,
1: I won't worry about it. Yeah, there are two Stephanie Burtz who are active on Twitter. One is a very, very talented and wonderful food writer from South Carolina, and the other is me. There you go. So, yeah, accommodatingly on Twitter. uh, I am on Instagram at not quite Hyde Park, but I'm not very active, and my public presence is perhaps, alas, a Twitter presence. And uh, there's going to be a chapbook out this year, a full-length book out from Grey Wolf Press next year, and a collaborative book about how to read X-Men comics coming out from Columbia University Press, probably in 2023.
0: Very exciting. Yeah,
1: and the co-authors on that uh, are really an amazing bunch, and I feel glad to be looped in. And that, yeah, already. Keep, me, k- yeah
0: exactly. keep me posted on that one. I'd love to oh, hear yeah. more about it.
1: Oh, yeah, it'll be a bit, though. Thank you so much. This has been amazing.
0: Thank you for being my guest, I really enjoyed this. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes and transcripts as I get them done at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. You can also find a link there to the Discord server. Join the conversation. It is a fun, laid-back space. No bad vibes allowed. You can email your questions, comments, and feedback to the podcast podcast at cerebrocast at gmail.com. unfortunately i'm recording early this week so i will have already recorded before you can hear this so you can't really send in questions for next week unless you already saw on twitter but next week's episode will feature 90s x-men legend fabian nasieza who will be on to talk about his new x-men legends arc and about his creation adam naromani aka adam x the extreme I'm sure we will get into other characters as well because Adam X has only appeared one Zaladane.
1: <laughs> the Zaladane! The unit of time!
0: Yes, it's 12 issues. Adam X has now appeared more than 12, but he has only achieved one Zaladane so far. Do
1: you round down when counting in Zaladanes?
0: I would say so. I mean, sometimes I do it to a decimal place, but I'm just not a big math guy. So for me, it's like he's accomplished one Zaladane, he may someday achieve two zaladanes which would be 24 issues he's uh he's on his way now because i think with this x-men legends arc he'll have 17 appearances mm. so that's he's getting there all that to say join us next week for an episode with fabian Nicieza. i'm really excited about that and until next time everybody bye
1: x-men x-men in the 21st century people mutants led by magneto aim to destroy the world only hope is
0: X-Men